On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. It's part eight of the Ackerman year. We are making progress, folks. Uh, my name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. And this month, our guest is a professor of screen media at Sussex, as well as a filmmaker in her own right, having uh, created the Filming Revolution uh, Digital Humanities Meta Documentary, which you can check out at filmingrevolution.org. It's Elisa Liebau. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. Hey. Uh, so we are, as we are wont to do on the on this podcast, we are once again swerving hard. We took a look at Ackerman and genre in golden eighties. You know, we we had before kind of a, a a a temporal a temporally contained section. This month we are not doing that. We are in fact looking at three thematically very closely linked works. I think, but over a much longer time span, and uh, also with some very different aesthetics at work. Uh, so the three films we're going to be talking about this month are uh, Dimoi, a.k.a. Tell Me, which is made for the Grandmothers uh, series in 1980. It's about 47 minutes long. After that, we're going to be skipping ahead to uh, Histoire d'Amérique, uh, Family, Food, and Philosophy. And uh, then we'll be skipping way ahead uh, up to 2006, which I think is by some measure the latest work we've talked about on the pod yet, which should be interesting. And uh, that's called uh, Laba, aka. Uh, that's is that down there or over there, Kate? Down there usually, yeah, so it's translated. Yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, Kate. What? Oh, actually, before we get into the films, Alisa, uh, what's your? Uh, how did you come come upon Ackerman uh, to begin with? What's your What's your relationship with Ackerman like? What is my relationship with Ackerman? Um, intimate, it feels like. Um, <laughs> yeah, same. But I think she has that. I think she has that effect on many of us. Um, I I was introduced to Ackerman years ago. I think it was 1982 when I was an undergraduate at Vassar College taking a feminist film course. Um, the kinds of films that we saw were like. Uh, Lizzie Borden's *Born in Flames* or Marlene Goris's *Question of Silence*. Uh, and of course, Jean Dillman, which made such a huge impression on me. I cannot tell you. I didn't study film. I didn't know much about film. I took this course, probably the first film class I ever took, you know, really sort of bringing my awareness to even, you know, the names of directors, that kind of thing, right? Um, and encountering Jean Dillman, I mean, the, the other films were fantastic too and also made huge impressions on me. But Jean Dillman was different and it just went in deep. And I thought I need to know more about this director. I remember a few years later telling a friend of mine that I worked with in, in New York city, I guess it must've been 89 that I loved this director named Chantal Ackerman that, you know, she made these really amazing films where you just kind of live with her characters and, and kind of from her perspective in some way. And, and this friend of mine out of the blue said, oh, I know Chantal. I mean, I wasn't working. I mean, she wasn't a filmmaker or a person in film. And I said, what do you mean? She said, and she's shooting in New York right now. So 
I learned that I learned about Histoire d'Amérique this way. Um, oh, wow. My friend was friends with uh, Sonia and Claire Atherton's brother, Mark, who tragically committed suicide not long after. Um, but at the time, my friend Ozzy had actually been to the set and I desperately wanted to go. And I didn't manage to make it in part because Ozzy just couldn't get Chantal's permission. And I learned that I learned that she was bipolar, though we didn't use that term back then. And I learned that when she was um, shooting, she went off her meds uh, for clarity. And that also meant she was all over the place. And it was a very kind of, you know, difficult environment. And so I never managed to go to the Williams, you know, under the Williamsburg Bridge where they were shooting um, then. But she was you know, some, a filmmaker who I paid very close attention to. And I ended up writing uh, in my dissertation about Dest, the film Dest. Um, I went to every installation of hers because she started doing installation work in the in the nineties. I caught things that I thought I had hallucinated about that nobody wrote about, uh, but I would stumble upon, you know, in a gallery in Soho in New York or something. And I even tried to get her help when I was making a film called Trafe and she called me. I got through to her and she called me and she left a message on my answering machine that was like, hello, this is Chantal. Uh, <laughs> uh, you wanted to talk to me about your film Trafe. Uh, let's see what we can do. Uh, happy Passover. Bye bye. You know, uh, <laughs> And I kept that my I kept that message on my machine. I could not I could not erase it. You know, I just would replay it. Like, oh my god, Ackerman was on my machine. Um, and I did end up meeting with her and one of her girlfriends uh, in Brooklyn at BAM. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think I managed to get her interested in helping me with that project. And it makes perfect sense why, because she really was not interested in in anyone else's identity projects, right? I mean, she was interested in her own. And, she, and you know, I'm pretty sure she thought that what I was going to do was going to be kind of a, you know, a bog standard uh, sort of personal kind of exploration. And she, you know, she was operating at a completely different level. I think even, I mean, she really was, but also in her own mind. And, <laughs> and that, you know, that was totally fine. So I then my next encounter with Ackerman was... Years later, um, when I was a jury member at the Doc Lisboa, when they were doing a full retrospective of her work, so that was that was already in the 2000 teens or something, and early 2000 teens, and they asked me if I would, you know, moderate a discussion with her. I had actually encountered her again another at another point at NYU when I saw her um, get really annoyed with Ivoni Margulis, whose book had just come out on her. And you could see she just didn't like being written about. She didn't like theory about her work. It just, all she wanted was a cigarette to get out of that room and have a cigarette, right? And I got introduced to her then. It wasn't the first time I'd met her, but I got introduced to her then by um, Annette Michelson, who managed to say, oh, this is Elisa Lebo. I think she still owes me a paper. <laughs> no, 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 this can't possibly be how she's introducing me to Chantal. So 
you know, never mind that I had met her already, but, um, and yeah, moderating, I, I got to hang out with her a bit at Doc Lisboa mm -hmm. and get to know her a little bit. It was always challenging. I knew it would be challenging to moderate the discussion. She sometimes got very annoyed by questions, for example, that were asked. <laughs> um, but I also found her entirely charming. You know, I would be worrying about her untied laces and she's like, oh no, I never tie my laces. You know, like, uh, you know, y y she in induced a kind of mothering instinct around mm. her really really interesting but i don't know her work regardless of her as a person her work stands out to me as absolutely mm. singular and i'm not an auteurist by nature i don't care that much usually mm. <laughs> but ackerman yeah. has always gone deep for me um, well, I think with say no offense to our prior guests, but I think that's definitely the best answer we've gotten so far to the how did you come to Ackerman project? It was so great to to hear your stories about meeting her and knowing her. What a wonderful uh, oh, what a wonderful lead in. Kate, that made me think about uh, if in an alternate universe where we're trying to get Chantal on the pod and fretting over like that would put me in the position of moderating the three of us, which I think would have been. <laughs> A nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it might have been equivalent, uh, not equivalent, but uh, with the previous podcast project having been about David Lynch, there's something very specific about, you know, filmmakers who I think do have really fascinating ideas. And it's interesting you said, Elisa, that she, she didn't like theory. Because she's one of the few filmmakers where you're reading her and like she's, you know, casually referencing Lacan or Deleuze and like she was so incredibly well read and she would want to invoke these ideas. But I think it was very different for her to feel like she was invoking the ideas rather than other people imposing them on her work as a kind of box. And so I think that is very much the challenge there. But if, you know, if we could get her to speak about things she wants to speak about, then who knows? Maybe we could have had an exciting conversation. <laughs> she did. She she did like to speak about her film. She didn't like others, you know, sort yeah. of pronouncing uh, upon her films. And I find, I mean, I find her films endlessly fascinating. I can't see yeah. how one wouldn't pronounce about them, or at least <laughs> I should say, I guess, um, knowing that she didn't like it, I have taken a certain approach to her films that, that I wouldn't maybe take to others, right? A less conventional approach to thinking with her in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, she's such a, important commentator I think on her own work I think there's only a few there's only a few filmmakers that you can speak about that way but she is a thinker of her own work absolutely maybe that's uh, as as good a segue as we're going to get to start talking about these films hopefully in a way that won't upset the spirit of Chantal Ackerman whatever she may be. Um, and uh, the first of these is from 1980 as I mentioned it's a sort of medium length documentary called uh, Dis-moi or Tell Me so Kate what can you tell us about how this came together uh, sure, I can give a little bit of information. But first, I should say, because we were, I think, so excited to introduce Elisa that we haven't yet said the theme of this. Um, oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Of course. I <laughs> of think I was going to do that. And then I, yeah, sure, by all means. <laughs> Um, which is, uh, I think we had it listed as something like Jewish histories and experiences. So even though these ideas run through a number of Ackerman's films, particularly in the latter part of her career, this was our episode devoted to this. So um, each of these films deals with these questions in, I mean, in some ways, very tightly linked ways, but in, in other avenues, quite formally different um, ways of asking these sorts of questions. So the first film that we'll deal with uh, 
yeah, Dimois from 1980 was made for a television series, a series about grandmothers that was proposed by Jean Fatat, who is a TV and radio personality, um, or was a TV and radio personality. And it was produced for a TF1, a Television, Television Francais 1, which, is, uh, which was the sort of main uh, public television channel in France at the time. So this would have had at least a, a decent audience, which is quite nice, actually. Um, and uh, the other people in the series, there were different filmmakers in the series, including like Colleen Serrault and uh, Jean Nustache, an early film by Jean Nustache called Numero. The final film was called Numero Zero, but the uh, shortened version was called Odette Robert, where he interviews his grandmother. Um, so each of these is different, you know, a different approach to questions of grandmothers. And Ackerman's uh, takes a kind of unusual approach in the sense that it is, the film is very much kind of organized around an absence at the center, which is the absence of her own grandmother who died in a concentration camp. Um, and so Ackerman talks to a series of uh, elderly women. I mean, some are older than others. Some don't actually seem to be particularly elderly, um, but different women, all of whom are survivors of the Shoah in a certain sense um, or have, uh, and have often immigrated from Eastern Europe or their family has. Uh, and so she talks to these figures and she also talks to her mother, but only in voiceover. So that the voiceover discussion with her mother kind of punctuates her walking to these grandmother's apartments in Paris and going into having like kind of long discussions with them, often unbroken takes of long discussions with the, uh, the women. And there's more to say about this that we can dig into. But yeah, the film's about 45 minutes long. So again, not quite a quite a feature, but um, a very substantial short, I think. And um I don't know. I have so much to say about this. Maybe I'll just start off by saying I hadn't seen, I'd only seen the film once before a few years ago, I think when it first uh, started circulating again, it had been one that was quite difficult to see for a long time, um, which you can tell because a lot of scholars, particularly of sort of the earlier generations of Ackerman scholarship, talk about the next film that we're going to watch, Histoire d'Amérique, that we'll talk about as the first time Ackerman deals directly with questions of um, Jewish experience or the Holocaust. But obviously, this is the first time Ackerman deals with that in a more direct way. But this film, I think, really wasn't talked about for very long. Um, and so I'd seen it a couple of years ago and I really liked it, but I, it didn't kind of strike me as anything, you know, a, a sort of major Ackerman film or anything. But then rewatching it last night, I don't know, it really affected me much more than I remember it affecting me before. I really we can talk about it, but towards the end, I found it heartbreaking like it really it, it, uh, <laughs> I don't mean to say upset in a bad way but I found it like really deeply affecting this time so I don't know I'm interested to hear how how you how you guys found the film well I mean so 45 minutes sounds like a short but it's a it's a tv hour so I'm yeah. actually imagining um commercials in between this very odd documentary right I mean it's not you know she she never made she never made a kind of you know traditional expository documentary in her entire oeuvre, but this is a real, a real oddity. Um, you know, it's not an experimental film particularly, but it's also, I mean, what documentary interviews three older women at, you know, at different lengths. So I guess the middle interview is pretty short. The last interview is so long that it, that it goes over what appears to be an entire afternoon and evening. Um, it's just kind of off balance. It has, you know, it has the interlocutor kind of barely ever saying a thing. Uh, it's just, it's a very odd little film um, that I was trying to imagine on, you know, 1980 French TV with commercials. And it just was like, wow, different era of television. What I found maybe most interesting is, I mean, she's working in a relatively, um, 
a relatively accessible format in the sense of, you know, she's filming interviews. We have the occasional, we have, we have something I think fairly rare in, in her work, which is kind of uh, like um, there's these quick, you know, these, these quick counter shots of, of Ackerman actually yeah. sitting and listening, which does make it feel like a slightly more, I guess, uh, standard, st standard, if you want to call that documentary style. But then she's also leaving in a lot of stuff that I'm sure no one else would like the constant, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the final longer interview, the, um, the subject is constantly berating, you know, politely berating Ackerman for not eating enough. You should eat more, yeah. eat, more. eat more. You're not eating. I think this is why you're not eating, which I just, I just love that she took the time to include that stuff. It's true. I mean, more than, more than that, even although that's really necessary material, right. For a Jewish grandmother. I mean, how could you make, how could you make a documentary about a Jewish grandmother and not have her saying, eat, eat, you're not eating enough. You're so skinny. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's necessary. Right. But she keeps all of these, I guess what, what Ivone uh, Margulis has called cliches. Um, the first two interviews in particular, they, they both start by saying, I don't have anything to tell. And they then tell some pretty, standard stories of survivors granted i mean the story is already um you know particular but they you know they're basically just telling of like ma marriage marriages children uh you know really pretty straight up stuff and she keeps it there because the quotidian is so important it's it's in some ways an you know an interview version of the women's time that we see in something like Jean Dilman yeah, and she's not pushing them. She's not asking them questions about how it felt or anything like that, or probing that would, any deeper, yeah. or trying to get you know, trying to break the the cliche at all. She wants she wants it as it is, you know, as it's told, without putting any pressure to bear on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I love that comparison too. Then with the third interview, which is so unique in a certain like the the third interview. I mean, and it's hard to summarize the last interview because she covers so much ground, but. Part a lot of it is her talking about her grandmother. Um, in you're, I think it's Poland, right? I think it's the, that story is set in Poland in the Pale. It's hard to say. I can't remember if she specifies. This is, of course, pretty characteristic of Ackerman's documentary work too. Is that a lot of the actual kind of specifics and details are left very vague here. We don't know any of the women's names. We often don't know what year they're speaking about or what area of the world they're speaking about. Um, but this last woman does speak at length about her grandmother and tells sort of very, just sort of very detailed, very um, uh, involving stories about her as a youth, um, her kind of living. Uh, partly in poverty, her learning to be a seamstress, um, her washing the young boys that her husband had adopted to uh, become tailors, to train to be tailors. I mean, these kinds of things. And and speaking about the grandmother with such reverence, like the idea that when she passed away, the um, the sun shone brightly, even though it was a winter day and the funeral and the whole town came out to, to mourn her. Um, I mean, and I think this is the, this is part of the arc of the latter half of the film is that by the time you get there, Ackerman has really set in motion this kind of um, ball rolling of 
a mixture of such strong affect. I mean, who doesn't have at least some affect about their own grandmothers, right? Even 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 if you have a kind of more complex relationship with your family, you have you you have some affect about grandmotherness and like relation and filiality with your own family. On the one hand, mixed with this sort of really increasing awareness of kind of historical absence and loss and like what has been lost. And I think she evokes it so uniquely in that last section, not specifically because of this woman talking about death or uh, family members being killed in the Holocaust, but because she's alone in this apartment. She's there by herself and she's often framed in these little shots with all of her family photos around her, but she's behind alone. And then of course, Ackerman agrees to stay with her for dinner, right? So they have this long lunch and then Ackerman stays with her for dinner. And the first time I found this very funny because the first time you see it, it, A, I hadn't caught it before, but it is almost exactly a kind of frame remake of the sequence late in um, in the middle of J2LL where uh, she goes she goes to the restaurant with the, the man and they're watching the TV while eating food. It's exactly this frame shot as the two of them watch this TV show. And apparently it was an episode of... Um, uh, the, Engl the English title is uh, The Incorruptibles in French. It's like uh, Les Incorruptables, uh, which is like a fifty, a late 50s, early 60s television show. And the grandmother seems so engaged in watching this TV show. Like she's so entranced by it. Whereas Ackerman is like bored out of her mind. And at a certain point, she um, it's hard to tell. I mean, I've seen critics say that she kind of mimes going to sleep. I don't know about that. Like, this is the thing is I think the first time it kind of felt that way to me. The second time I found it, I read it very differently the second time, but um, anyway, Ackerman falls to sleep and the grandmother asks her if she wants to sleep over and Ackerman says, no, I have to go home. And that's how the, and then you see again, this woman by herself framed in, a, in an isolating shot and then the film ends. Um, but I don't know, for me, the second time, by the time you get to that ending, I don't know, Ackerman kind of, well, I have a lot to say, but I, let me, let me circle back to some of this because I want to hear more about what other people thought, but um, I don't know. But Simon, how did you, how did you find it on the whole, this film? Cause had you, you hadn't seen it before, I assume. No, the, everything that I'm, that I'm seeing th this round is, was a, was a first viewing. I really enjoyed this one. And of course it, it, it of course can't help, but make you reflect on your own grandmother and think on, on, on your own family history. And I think this, I would love to see more of uh, like uh, the, the notion of, of grandmothers specifically as a topic to hone in on, I think is so, so interesting to me because it's like two generations back, almost no matter, I mean, I'm sure there's families where this is not the case, but for most families, two generations back, people are living very differently. You know, my, my grandmother, uh, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's from Ontario, not from Poland, but you know, she had 13 kids like a whole completely different way of life from literally anyone I know or anyone in my, in my current and of course, very large family. Um, you know, it's I just the, the, the notion of just hopping back a little bit further and it dovetails so nicely with Ackerman's pet themes anyway, uh, and the themes that are going to sort of dominate this episode in terms of distance and loss and tradition and guilt over, over things not kept or not shared or not preserved it's difficult not to be moved uh, by this one in particular, I think for that reason. The, the N Nellie um, Ackerman's voiceover, right? So, so Chantal interviews her mother, um, Natalia uh, is her name, but nickname is Nellie. We are not told that this is her mother that's being interviewed. We only hear something in audio. Um, and because you know, some of us are familiar with later work 
um, where her mother appears. Um, well, actually, she's also she also appears in what is it? The Golden Eighties as the mother, or one of those. Uh, it's Chuchu Nui. It's uh, Chuchu Nui. I think oh, is, is the first yeah. is the first one. And it's funny. I think at the time I said that was the first time she's in Ackerman's film. But I guess this here we have the voice again. Well, yeah, just the voice, I suppose. But sorry, keep going. Anyway, so we may be familiar with with her from knowing later Ackerman films, but we wouldn't have been familiar with who that would was that Ackerman was interviewing. But I'm confused about the grandmother story because. The story that we learn from Ackerman, actually in later material, is that the grandmother perishes in Auschwitz. But the story that Nellie is telling is that when she came back from Auschwitz, from the camps at the end of the war, it was to her grandmother's house that she goes. And she's, um, as a result, not alone, not bereft, not, um, you know, hasn't lost everything. And, and she talks about the grandmother as making a nest having made a nest now maybe I mean I'm I think it's it is a little confusing I think what it is is that it's Ackerman's Ackerman's mother is the one who lost her mother so it's Ackerman's grandmother who dies in the camps so Ackerman's mother in that scenario is talking about Ackerman's great-grandmother she's talking about her grandmother right so Ackerman's Ackerman's grandmother does pass away that's the woman who is in the go. camps when she's quite young that's right I think, I think Ackerman says she's like only or no sorry 35 says she's only 35 that's yeah. right that's right sorry um, for my own confusion but okay no, so, no. She, so she loses her her own grandmother but so Nellie has a grandmother to to bring into the conversation and you know that grandmother is uh everything that home is supposed to be right mm. So it's it's as if, you know, from the, you know, post-war onwards, the most important person for her in terms of life itself is her is her grandmother. So then you really understand the the importance of the the grandmother and the grandmother stories um, for Ackerman, who, as you say, didn't have a grandmother, didn't experience having a grandmother because of the Holocaust. Yes. Yeah. And I, we, I, they actually don't say, but I assume, wait, no, it, it, they do say, when well, Nellie does say at one point that the great grandmother is still alive when Ackerman is born, right? When she's quite small, I think they meet, but And yeah, how much just, she loved yeah. her and how, yeah. you know, how excited she was about it. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's pretty extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that the, um, again, this documentary, it leaves a lot unsaid, right? I mean, Nellie kind of hints at something like the fact of how unusual it was that she had a family member that she could go back to when she leaves the camps, right? That the, um, that this, that many of her friends were so desperate to come and visit Nellie, Nellie's grandmother because they didn't have anyone. Um, and uh, just as a side note, if people haven't seen it, uh, the Christian Petzold film Phoenix, I feel like is one of the few feature films I've seen that that captures this sense of the immediate post-war period and the sense of the Jewish community having been so decimated, the sense that the survivors were just absolutely adrift, like had no one to connect with, except for sort of maybe a friend here and there that had survived. But anyway, I just say that as if people are interested, it's a wonderful film. But um, that very much sort of feeds into the background of what's going on here. And then I think too, yeah, just it, it really, as you say, this idea of the grandmother who sort of is everything that home should be. And it very much comes to stand in for this sort of idea of a kind of idyll idyllic familial space that has been maybe lost or is being mourned in a certain sense here. And that Ackerman is 
kind of chasing or something. And this is why I think the shots of her listening to the grandmothers does, does so much work in this film, right? And so, somebody else pointed out in comparison to the uh, Jean Eustache film that's also in this series, which is a much more kind of traditionally set up film is my understanding, is that he is, you know, he's behind the camera being an interviewer, right? He kind of maintains this position of like objectivity. Ackerman very much denies herself anything like that position here. Instead, she is in, she's not always in the frame with the, um, with the women, sometimes she is, but by and large during their kind of very long um, monologues, the film cuts back to Ackerman watching but in a way that's very unusual. Like I think it isn't there. She's not really performing the kind of thing that often documentary like interviewers are performing where they're performing a sort of like engagement or a kind of like, you know, enthusiasm for what's being said. Ackerman reads is very, it's not exactly blank, but it's like, she's kind of dejected sometimes a little melancholic in the, in, in these shots. Um, she sort of smiles, but it often seems like she's a little pained in how she smiles or a little pained in, in being forced to eat this food always. Um, but I don't know, to me, it, A, it, it made me think very much of her remarks about the figure of Anna and meetings with Anna, where she's talking about this idea of a kind of a sort of alien figure, like a figure who refuses to try to tame the distance between herself and the other by kind of saying, oh, I completely understand, or I have a similar story, or I know this, or I know that, but instead just sort of sitting there in kind of this like semi-absorbed silence without trying to bridge the gap between the two of them. But it also makes Ackerman such a presence in the film, I find, like this idea of what she is missing or wanting or something is so, it comes through so clearly. And then the scene at the end where she falls asleep next to the woman, or maybe falls asleep next to the woman, I don't know, to me, it just got at something very um, affecting about, about the idea of a kind of loss of this sense of home, that there's this moment where it feels like she has such comfort next to this woman that she can kind of fall asleep a little bit in this very silly kind of space of eating this food, watching TV, but it's so comforting. And then it's over like immediately, right? Then it ends and she has to leave. I don't know. I just found it and, ah, heartbreaking. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I had some I had some thoughts about this. I mean, I thought at the beginning they look, as Simon suggested, a lot like those noddies, uh, you know, that B-roll that you take just to cover any cuts. Um, and then it sort of, by the middle of the film, has more, af you know, more complex affect. So, you know, certain kinds of tension, certain kinds of discomfort, certain kinds of longing that seems to appear on Ackerman's face and that in increases also, I mean, she's in the frame because she, or in the cutaways or not behind the camera. Well, in part, because mostly she's not a camera person, despite the fact that she did the camera for, for Laba um, and for no home movie, but she's in the frame because she's trying on granddaughter hood. She's performing granddaughter and I think you know in part it's you know an obvious thing right uh, age-wise uh, you know it's appropriate but in part it's it's very much a you know a, a replacement to trying it on what is it what would it be like what what would it be like if you were my bubby if you were my my grandma and and I think the last one it's like Goldilocks it's right the last one fits <laughs> yeah <I like> <laughs> absolutely um 
Oh, yeah. I love this idea of what would it be like? I feel like that's a, a theme that will run through a lot of these films, actually. The idea of the sort of the path not taken, the road not taken. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, yeah. I just wanted to maybe put a flag on, you know, another, another, another thing. Sort of, you can't not think about, Kate, you were talking about Ackerman's sort of like ambivalence or like difficult to read um, relationship to uh, to the material or the or the sometimes the interviews and of course it's 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 it, it's sort of impossible not to start thinking about well what is like you know Ackerman's relationship to you know motherhood and grandmotherhood and her thoughts on Jewishness and parenting and you know the you know the potential for parenting and the way people um, throughout uh, especially the, the the first two films we're talking about talk about you know parenthood and child rearing as being so important and such such like a sort of like what seemingly the mission of life for for many people um and that's also like potentially her uh, ambivalence or a difference of opinion on that or whatever uh, is also sort of percolating uh, at least for me when i'm thinking about these films it's hard not to it's hard not to like want to bring in the conversation of all of the films all at once uh, in a way but um I think, you know, she she was more ambivalent than many, I think, about her lack of children. You know, m many of us um, certainly living uh, queer life live without any major ambivalence about it. It's a choice that we've made and we're fine with it. She, I think, wasn't um, ever entirely reconciled to it. And I think it has very much to do with being a child of survivors and the, the pressure also to, to bear, I mean, certainly any Jewish household of that generation would have had a lot of pressure around having children, but hers, you know, the, the pressure from having lost, you know, an entire generation of a family um, is, is that much more. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, this will all lead quite perfectly into the next film that we'll talk about Historia d'Amérique. But, um, but before we get there, I just wanted to note maybe two more quick things about the, or one more quick thing about this film that I hadn't caught the first time around. And I don't know that I just, I just love because I feel like so much of Ackerman's documentary work, particularly it feels, I mean, nothing Ackerman ever does feels casual exactly, but, it, but in a, in a certain sense, even despite the kind of very sort of strict formal parameters she often sets up, it feels very kind of open to chance, very sort of um, contingent that she's, and I think that's very true, but then I think sometimes it's easy to kind of miss some of the more interesting like choices that she's making that are imposed choices that are kind of choices she's bringing to it. And there were two here that I hadn't caught before, or really just one, but they echo with each other. Um, the first one is just the fact that you kind of get a sense in these early interviews where Ackerman is sort of doing things to highlight the way that all of the women connect together in interesting ways. Like she draws out sort of links across them. For, for example, I think you have Nellie, uh, early on saying this thing about how all of her friends always wanted to come over to the grandmother's house and the grandmother loved it because she just was so it mattered so much to her to have young people around and then when Ackerman I think is arriving or leaving the next woman's house she says the same thing exactly she says it makes me feel so good to have young people in my house I want this to happen but the more interesting one I think is um, a shot that the first time I saw the film really didn't make much sense to me is I think it's the end of the second interview that again is not a very long interview. Um, and the woman talks about uh, having her children and how this sort of helped bring her mother back to life after her father was deported. And uh, and then the, the sequence ends with this woman sitting in a, like 
easy chair, kind of looking up at the ceiling and the light behind her gets brighter and brighter and brighter until it kind of sort of bathes the whole image in this bright light. And it's very unusual in the whole film. I mean, there's no other shots like that in the film. And then I feel like you, maybe the only the second time you see it, you realize in a later in the later interview, the next the third interview, where the woman is talking about oh, what exactly does she say? Um, oh no, sorry, it's Nellie actually. It isn't the third woman. It's Nellie says <clears throat> towards the end of the film um, when Nellie is saying what she often says, which is I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else you want me to say um, about my mother uh, or my grandmother. She says everything is bathed in light when I think of her. Um, and to me, it's like, this is these like beautiful kind of things that Ackerman does drawing out in the visual, this echo of, of the, the auditory and vice versa. I don't know. I just thought it was a really beautiful little touch. All right. Any more remarks specific to, uh, Dimoi before we move on to our second feature? I think I just wanted to say one more thing about it. I mean, uh, and it's, and it's got to do with the way the women's time and the women's space and the women's stories. I mean, in, in Yiddish when somebody's you know tells a lot of nonsense and just talks a lot of crap, it's called babemysis. It's called grandma's stories, <laughs> and it's you know it's devalued as speech um, in Jewish culture as it is in every culture. Um, but there's a there's a name for it, and it's literally grandmother's stories. So we have we have babemysis the entire film where she gives space for grandmother's stories in, in, you know, space that is really not ever given, neither culturally nor certainly, you know, televisually or, you know, in terms of, of any mainstream media context. So not that different from the gestures that she gives space for in Jean Dillman. You know, there, it's a very similar uh, impulse. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I love that idea. I also, I love the fact that you get almost, you get a very clear echo with Jean Dielman late in the film when the third interviewee, Ackerman, shoots her from the side in the kitchen for like a few minutes as she's sort of endlessly trying to find something so she can make, um, I'm not sure what she's making, but some kind of baking thing that, that this woman's making. And it is, it just, it is heartbreakingly adorable. I just, <laughs> this one is so cute. I can't help it. <laughs> um, but it very much reads, and, and not only because the kitchens are just the architecturally very similar, um, but it reads very much as an echo to this idea of kind of ritual and tradition as as having a kind of the double-edged sword, right? Of on the one hand that you see in John Dielman, on the one hand being very comforting and very structuring, but on the other hand can be very sort of oppressive and, uh, you know, avoiding kind of change or um, newness or life. And anyway, which is, again, something that will be very much here throughout these other films, too. So, um, so yeah, should we transition to uh, Histoire d'Amérique? Absolutely. So um, we are keeping some of the uh, many of the thematic concerns from uh, from Dimois, but we are really changing style format pretty much everything uh, on this one. So we're skipping ahead a few years to, uh, are we, is this 84? It's 88, 89, 88. Oh, actually. 89, my 89 bad. is yeah. when it officially comes out. Yeah. 89. Uh, yes. Ackerman had a very, had a very busy eighties. Uh, so we are, uh, whereas our last film was sort of relatively, relatively straight documentary aesthetics here, we are going over to something totally different. So uh, Kate, once again, I'm going to have to rely on you for a, a description of a very d difficult to describe project. What's the matter? What's the matter? My shoes are killing me. 
so why are you wearing them? Why? Well, I am going to tell you why. My business could be worse. I own money to the butcher, to the baker, to the grocer, to the landlord. I have two daughters, so ugly. Who knows if I will be able to marry them one day. My son is a real idiot. And my wife knocks and knocks and knocks until I go crazy. Each night, when I come back from the fruitless day of work, and I look at my bills, and I look at my family, at that point, I could kill myself. So, I take off my shoes, and mister, this minute, when my shoes off my feet, is such a mechaye. It's only thing that make life worth living. Huh? Mm. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to take the easy way out and just give some backstory about how the film got made, and then we can creep up on the question of what this film actually is. <laughs> but it's, um, okay, so, uh, so Ackerman had sort of different ideas that led her into this. Like, I, apparently in 1987, she told... Uh, Ivone Margulies about an idea for a film in which each character would tell a joke about his or her ethnic group while eating a typical ethnic dish. This was apparently one of the early threads that changed a lot by the time it became this. Um, but uh, she had also been telling interviewers for a long time that the film she really wanted to make would tell the story of the uh, diaspora of the Eastern European Jews in America. Uh, and this is part of, of course, why she had wanted to adapt Isaac Bashevis's singers, uh, Bashevis singers uh, work, which had at this point fallen through. It wasn't going to happen. Um, but the opportunity to do something related came when she proposed um, to make something about singers work for a French tele television series on writers. Uh, she went to New York where um, Singer had lived for many years uh, in exile as a Polish Jew. And I should say, I'm quoting Janet Bergstrom here who wrote about this many years ago. Uh, so Singer had lived for many years in exile as a Polish Jew and Ackerman went to New York to research a kind of half hour documentary about him. Uh, and while there, she stumbled upon what she called a lost world uh, and in a way a phantom world when she found hundreds of letters from immigrants which had been published regularly since 1910 in an advice column in the Yiddish newspaper, The Jewish Forward. And as Ackerman said, in the letters that readers sent in, they talked about their lives and their problems. There was news, there was jokes, uh, what we called quote, Jewish stories. Uh, I was really moved by all the stories and I rewrote them in my own way, fictionalizing them. 
Um, so we can come back and sort of talk about what she does with these stories, but uh, many of the letters and the stories deal with life in the Pale, in the Shettle, uh, and in urban centers like Warsaw, New York, during the late 19th and early 20th century. And these are the kind of material that, that Ackerman builds into the crux of Histoire d'Amérique. When uh, Adam Roberts and Joanna Hogg showed the film as part of the retrospective that Anosa Moores did in 2015, um, Ackerman told them that all the surviving negatives and prints of the film, it originally had been shot on 16 to be blown up to 35, that all of the original prints had been lost. So at the time they showed what they thought was the surviving uh, copy, which was like a beta standard uh, deaf copy uh, with burnt in French subtitles. Um, and this is how I had seen the film many years ago was this sort of like really low grade VHS copy that was circulating for a while. Um, but then, you know, fortunately, that turned out to not be the case that all of these things were lost because a restoration was completed by the Royal Cinema Cinematheque of Belgium. Uh, I think in about 2019, which is currently on the Criterion channel. Um, and it looks beautiful. I've never seen it look this good. So just if anybody has access to that, I highly recommend checking it out there. Um, and then, yeah, there's much, there's a lot more we can say about what this is. Um, but, uh, but we'll get to all of it. Um, so maybe Simon, because it's, it was new for you. You're, you're maybe the most outlier here. What was your, what were your reactions to this? Um, I was initially sort of, you know, all the, all the helpful background information you just shared, uh, absolutely none of that appears in the film. <laughs> that is one of the most interesting things about it. It really just, it strands you in its style and then yeah. just kind of lets you figure it out from there uh, as is sort of, tip, I guess, uh, if you want to call that typical of Ackerman, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with you uh, on a first viewing. I mostly felt like I sort of had the same feeling about uh, both, of the, both of our two features today of, of after a first viewing, I thought, I think I need another viewing, but I will say there's a lot, there's certainly a lot of um, e easily accessible surface pleasures to uh, Histoire mm. d'Amérique, uh, I think, I think for just about anyone. Um, I will say is also, it's just incredible to see an Ackerman movie featuring skits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very vaudeville. It's very, yeah. I mean, it very, it really borrows from somewhere between, you know, early vaudeville in New York and, you know, the Borscht Belt uh humor so I, there were a lot of comedians doing what was called the borscht belt which were these um retreats hotels in the countryside in the catskills uh of new york about two hours north of the city where you know working class jews who managed to save a little bit of money would go for a weekend entertainment so that those vignettes those skits feel familiar in that in that regard she's borrowing from a culture that you know i mean it was alive even into the 70s because yeah. i was taken to grossingers as a kid uh <laughs> or you know to i uh, took the pines grossingers i think there was a third one that i was taken to the fall something something fall anyway so that was still kind of happening even into the 70s right and she makes this in the late 80s so it's not as if it wouldn't have been a living memory of yeah. many of those, many of the actors in the film. So that, yeah, but it's not a typical Ackerman film by any no. stretch. I mean, I, I think we've we've established at this point that there really is no such thing, but there's certainly, <laughs> there's certainly a lot of, of uh, there's, there, there's a lot of outlying material here for sure. Yeah, I mean, I very... kind of think there are, you know, there's, there, there, are very clear signatures of Chantal Ackerman. You know, the long take, the static shot, the mm -hmm. um, 
the, you know, allowing things to happen in real time. The, I mean, all of these things that, that she became known for immediately, you know, at age 25 was John Dillman, which she didn't, you know, pursue in quite the same way after the seventies, but, you know, we know what we know to expect certain things, and then eventually the the tracking shots in her documentaries, right? Histoire d'Amérique is just something else altogether. Yeah. Um, there are still, I say, I would say, there are still many of the strains and themes, um, maybe even more pronounced than in most of her other films. But but the the film style, the technique, even the acting, is actually really distinctive from her other work it, yeah it is distinctive uh one thing i i, I guess one thread i i did connect with with earlier films was the way you know she she when you're what again you're watching the film and un unless you've listened to this podcast you really have no context for you know are Im immediately are you think okay are these did these stories happen to these people when did these stories happen mm -hmm. uh but i the film kind of clues you in pretty early with the performance style, yeah. uh, which I think is some, something, one thing that it does have in common with with certain other Ackerman films is the way she uses performance to uh, uh, I don't want to I don't want to say mess with viewers, but certainly to to, to clue you into uh, what she's doing using like certain performance styles or certain lack of lack of affect or addition of affect, uh, and that's certainly a major part of how of why this works, I think. Yeah, and I, I mean, this film is fascinating, again, I think, for those reasons. And I, I think it's often part of the reason why it isn't, um, why it's been talked about more recently, I would say, in terms of kind of the way people bro Jackerman's work. I think it hasn't been talked about nearly as much as her other features, certainly even not many of her other features from the 80s. Um, however, certain critics, I think, like Marianne Schmidt and other people, they tend to lump this work in with... Um, with Ackerman's turn in the 80s towards, you know, quote unquote, kind of visual pleasure toward the more sort of uh, investigations of kind of, quote unquote, like cinnamon magic, sort of the idea of like musicals, uh, performance, lighting, color, costume, as opposed to the more kind of minimalist, um, formalist material of the previous decade, which I think is true. But I think you're very right, Elisa, that it doesn't saying that doesn't really capture this film. <laughs> like it, it gets some way there, but it doesn't really get all of the way there. And I think it's because Ackerman is sort of using maybe these kinds of stylistic avenues she'd been exploring in this decade to then turn to these questions of sort of Jewish identity and history in an unusual way, but it's very new, I think, in her um, practice at this point. I think she is, is still kind of working out exactly what to do here. And it's interesting because I think the film I don't want to say it got mixed reviews, but I, it certainly at the time, and even I think many years later, critics are not always on board with it the way that they are sort of uniformly on board with many of her other films. Like Rosenbaum, I think at the time when it came out, said something about how, you know, Ackerman is a specialist in shooting interiors. And maybe that's why this film doesn't work because it's all about exteriors. Or, um, you know, Ivana Markley is... I think she sort of pulls some interesting things out of the film, but in her book, she's she is a bit down on it. I mean, she calls it sort of heavy handed and um, she sort of talks about how maybe it's the fact that Ackerman is like too close to the kind of material of identity in it to, in her words, create an unfamiliar image, which I think is is maybe fair. I mean, I think what Ackerman is doing here, it doesn't necessarily create the kind of 
whole new form of filmmaking that something like Dest creates. But I don't think that that means that it's not really kind of valuable or engaging in its own right. And, and we haven't even really yet described exactly what the film is doing. Um, but just as a brief overview, and I'll pass it back uh, to others here, the, um, the film consists in the first two thirds specifically of long uh, static shots of performers doing monologues that are taken from these stories that Ackerman adapted, the letters that Ackerman adapted. Um, and the shots are primarily all shot under the Williamsburg Bridge uh, in Manhattan, which at the time was a kind of like really run down, semi-abandoned part of the city. And so the buildings are often sort of overgrown or kind of falling down. And the performers are wearing a mix often of kind of costumes that are meant, they, they're not, the costumes are not sort of verisimilitudinous, but they're meant to kind of invoke previous time periods. But the backgrounds are not disguised at all as being of a previous time period. The backgrounds are clearly the kind of current day in the late 80s in New York. And you see sort of garbage trucks going through and you hear traffic and as these people give their performances. So that's one thread. Then the other thread in the first part of the film is um, the these sort of comedic vaudevillian uh, interludes that Simon and Elisa have mentioned here, where you have either one or often multiple characters speaking to each other out of these sort of conventional jokes in this kind of performance mode of the jokes. Um, and this sort of culminates in the last third of the film. It builds up to this scenario where all of the characters sort of come together, or many of the characters come together in a kind of outdoor set, which is meant to evoke a sort of older deli style restaurant, but set outside, again, under the near the Williamsburg Bridge with lights hanging over them. And here you get more, again, a kind of communal sense of the performance of the kind of jokes in the vaudeville, although you still have characters giving the sort of monologues um, at that point. And, and it builds to a a very specific ending which we can talk about afterwards but um but yeah Elisa did you want to jump in there well uh, I was thinking I mean I was thinking about what you said uh, I'm not familiar with what I don't remember what Yvonne had said about mm. this film but uh, the idea of her being too close mm. and in a way I guess as a New York Jew as somebody whose you know great grandparents lived on the Lower East Side and whose grandparents did everything they could to get them out of the Lower East mm. Side and um who comes very much from the, from that history mm -hmm. i i actually relate to this film as uh, uh you know i see her as somebody who's not close enough to it who doesn't quite have a feel for uh. for um the culture that i that i was raised in mm. um there's sort of in some sense there's you know she's very busy with her um is some kind of mixture of nostalgia and also a kind of a a bitterness, right? That there's there there has to be a sort of unhappy undertone, a misery um, that, that she sort of in insists pretty mm. much at every at every turn. And I think, well, actually, yeah, black humor is very much a thing. It's a you know classic form Jewish form of humor, but um, she's also missing a lot of the a lot of the actual joy, a lot of the warmth mm. um, that that uh, you know i don't think i don't think she had space for that necessarily but mm. for me it's it's not quite there i don't you know and i i find that really interesting so her mark as an outsider trying to look on to mm. what is this cultural configuration right i mean it's random where any of us as um you know jews whose families may have migrated in the 20th century it's it's or 
19th century, it's random where we might have ended up. And so she imagines herself as possible, you know, she could have been, she could have been, what if yeah. her family, what if they had emigrated before the before the war, like my family mm -hmm. did, or part of my family did, um, you know, she could have been a New York Jew, right? And it, it but she's not. And, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, so I'm very, I'm very aware of it watching it. That just made me think about what what it would have been like if if uh, if Ackerman had as as she does in the other two of these films uh, that we're talking about this month stuck herself in there somewhere. It's interesting that she didn't, right? I mean, you, you yeah. she could have, right? She's trying on having a grandmother, and she mm -hmm. and she's very much you know in Israel in, in Laba imagining in a way. Well, what if my family had had made Aliyah and moved there? So yeah, you would mm -hmm. think, yeah. but she yeah, doesn't. I think it's definitely fair to say that, that like potentially it's it lands more as more of an exercise than mm. um than uh Dima did. Yeah, well that's interesting. I mean I hmm, it's certainly not a film where let's say where emotion comes through, where where the film wants you to feel like emotion is coming through in an unmediated way. I think sort of like the sense of mediation and distance is more present here than it is in something like Dumois, and certainly than it is in something like Le Bas. But um, I don't know. I mean, I I really I really like this film. I think it's grown on me in the in the years since I've seen it again. I think the first time I saw it, I felt similarly where I was like, oh, it's there's some great stuff in here, and it's 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 like very engaging. But maybe it doesn't quite live in the same way as other Acker as, as some of other Ackerman's films do, and and maybe that's true. I'm I'm not sure. It, I don't know. I don't like ranking things, but it doesn't need to be at the top of any pile. But I think there's a lot that I really love here, and I think, as I always say, reading about it more this time um, after watching it, I feel like. Mm, there are a few different things I've read about the film that has really brought out different aspects of it for me. And one of them, maybe most evocatively, is this idea of the film really dealing with something like phantoms or the idea of kind of ghosts. And that the characters, some of the characters late in the film here even say, you know, maybe we're ghosts and, and where are we from? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to go back there. Um, you know, that this is, the film reads, I think, quite differently when you feel like really what she's doing with this kind of formal setup of the characters monologuing to the camera and these sort of isolated uh, frames or being only able to speak to each other in these kinds of conventional performance sort of jokey ways. I don't know, it creates on the one hand a real sense of kind of atomism or isolation amongst the community. And this is maybe what Elisa was saying about the sort of sense of kind of heaviness and misery here, um, a kind of isolation on the one hand, but then the idea that the the communalness or the communality that you get in the latter part of it is still very much a kind of haunted space. Like it really does feel like these are, yeah, ghosts, that this is a kind of a space that, that exists beneath or behind the reality of the actual community living in, you know, the Lower East Side in New York in the latter part of the century that instead that this isn't really a kind of ethnographic project. It's much more a project about sort of evoking yeah, a sense of kind of history that is behind the scenes and a history that comes out as much in these kind of letters or stories um, as it does in the kind of humor, right? The sort of haunting of the humor is a kind of, as you say, like black humor or something that that both wants to deny kind of certain realities, but can't help invoking those, the misery of those realities at the same time. Um, I don't know. I just found that very haunting, the idea of this kind of latter part being ostensibly a sort of joyful gathering, but at the same time, them feeling very much like ghosts. I don't know. I, I love that. Uh, uh, tell me, how's your cousin doing? A lot better. The doctor said he could leave the psychiatric home. Is that where he was? 
Yes, he thought he was a grain of corn. But things are going better. So, uh, where is he now? Up in a tree. And if you want my opinion, I think he's better there. But why? And, uh, what's he doing up in a tree? Well, now that he is cured, he knows that he is not a grain of corn, but a man. But who can know what the hens think? Who knows what hens think? Who knows? Who knows? Well, and this may go some way to explaining some of the lighting choices. Hmm. Um, in the in the earlier parts, you have you have uh, what almost looks like a police car with with lights spinning mm -hmm. going past one of the very first women who speaks, and then you have the the uh, young man speaking, and behind him there's some just weird things happening with the lighting that I don't, I mean, it, maybe it was incidental. Maybe it was actually just happening in the New York city, but knowing, uh, you know, Ackerman's tendency to try to manipulate and control a lot of elements. It's very possible that she had, you know, a lot of, a lot of that was, was set up. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, even the cat that crosses a frame, like <laughs> it begins to then come together as, you know, a kind of ghosting as a, yeah. you know, there's, there's uh, forces bearing upon the frame. Yeah. That can't be seen or that can just be seen sort of in the corner of, of your eye. And, and that, you know, begins to make a little bit more sense. Yeah, definitely. And and it, it links up to me, it links up too, to, I think, to the kind of temporal and, and even spatial, but, but more temporal kind of unmarkedness of this film, right? The fact that, again, like in Dimois, this the letters and the narratives that people are recounting in these stories are clearly, like, again, Ackerman has fictionalized them, but they are clearly meant to draw in sort of specific time, specific places. But a lot of that information is stripped out of them. So we don't know exactly what time period this person is supposed to be speaking from or where exactly they are, except broadly that they have immigrated to New York, maybe. Um, and so I don't know, this idea that like, and then the joke, the, the, the world of the kind of vaudeville joke seems to be not exactly timeless, but it certainly isn't kind of set in the same sort of historical moments that the other stories are. And so you end up with this kind of strange sense of like temporal fluidity that, that Mar this is a point from Margulies, which I think is totally right, which I think brings in a really different kind of way of dealing with time that Ackerman is often associated with, right? Ackerman, her work is often associated with the idea of duration, the kind of specific phenomenological experience of time in relation to the image. And some of that is here, right, with these long monologues, but it, it's quite different. Instead, it's like you really feel sort of unmoored in this kind of history that is present, but not, doesn't locate you. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and that, that I mean, okay, we didn't talk about the opening shot, but it's super important. Yeah. Oh, I know. Um, oh, and yeah. it's it's taken from the Staten Island Ferry, I believe. It, the It's actually two shots. One shot is completely in fog you can't see anything uh, clearly you don't fully understand where you are but you, there's some movement and it seems to be movement on water and then the next shot um, we're still on the water and we see Manhattan's yeah. some part of Manhattan skyline not even the you know iconic Manhattan skyline but you somehow know you're in New York and right you're approaching something but it's unmoored literally right I mean you ha you're not in place and 
the the rest of the film kind of keeps people unmoored. We're in New York. We know we're in New York. We we hear New York. We can practically smell New York. We can see a bridge. We, but we are nowhere. We are absolutely yeah. nowhere. And that's so much more of an Ackerman thing than a New Yorker thing, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, yeah. New Yorkers, we have... Uh, I still think of myself as a New Yorker, though I've lived there outside of New York for the last 20 years. But I mean, <laughs> New Yorkers, you know, New York has one of the has the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there's a sense very much a sense of emplacement. Right. It's our city and it's our place. And, you know, we we influence that culture so, you know, so thoroughly that people use Yiddish as, you know, common expressions and the whole, you know, it's just the way it is right in new york mm-hmm. there's a there is an emplacement and a way in which you know we tend to f- to not feel unmoored but ackerman has famously talked about being connected to no place to yeah. you know feeling nomadic to um you know the wandering jew to all of these associations and she creates that even for new york jewish culture mm, that's interesting yeah um and I, I mean it works i think as well even because she's pulling, she's there's a push and pull here of the kind of specificity and the lack of specificity, and the other part of the the kind of push towards the specific or the grounded here is the fact that the performers are are taken or like the performers that she's working with in the film come specifically from uh, theaters associated with the kind of Jewish community in the the Lower East Side and different parts of New York. Yeah, the Living um, Theater, right? Is the Living Theater. Um, yeah, I have some of the other, I mean, I recognize a lot of the actors from just sort of different things, but, um, and of course the one who many people will likely recognize is Esther Ballant, who, uh, was associated with a squat theater that her father founded. And then she famously was in Jim Jarmusch's, uh, Stranger Than Paradise, I think, right? When she was quite young, when she was like 15, she plays the cousin. Um, but she was also a, a musician, I believe too, right? Or she is a musician. Um, there's anyways, Judith she, Molina. Yeah. I think she would be yeah. familiar to at least New York audiences, of a time yeah. or of a period. Yeah, there's Roy Nathanson. Um, yes. Is that his name? Did I get that right? Yeah, I, I believe so, yeah. Um, would be familiar, and I don't even, I mean, just sort of ubiquitously familiar, probably. Mm-hmm. But um, there's, yeah, there's a, she's definitely drawing from a tradition, from a history, but she displaces them as well. And it's it's almost yeah. it's almost Brechtian in, in, you know, in its affectlessness in many, in many cases. Simon, I think you early on uh, when we were talking about Dean Wassel, you brought up a point that um, is exceedingly relevant for Histoire, which we haven't mentioned yet, which is that, yeah, the, the opening after you have the opening shot um, or during the opening shot, you hear this sort of long monologue from Ackerman where she tells a story. Uh, and I don't have it right at the top of my head to be able to recount it, but the gist of it is that um, she's, rec- well, maybe, Elisa, do you have it right in mind? Do you want to do, do it? Yes, I <laughs> do. It. It's, I mean, you know, it's not her story. It's a, it's a well-known Jewish parable, yeah. and it starts with a rabbi who goes through a village, always the same village, and go, you know, goes into the forest and, and stops at a particular tree, always the same tree, and he says uh, a prayer, and God hears him. And then uh, successive generations, you know, can't remember which tree. So they just, you know, pray in the village and can't remember the village. So they just, you know, find another place to pray. Then eventually they can't even remember the words to the prayer and God, nonetheless, each in each iteration or in each generation, God hears him. And Ackerman finishes this parable. So, you know, well-known parable. She doesn't make it up, but she brings it up very 
um, pointedly and ends it by saying, I don't know the prayers and I don't even have kids to pass this down to. Mm-hmm. And you feel, you know, very much again, that long, that longing or that con- conflicted relationship yeah. to, to not having kids, but the film and her films, I think very clearly are her way of passing mm-hmm. things, yeah. right? These are her children as it were, or her, um, you know, she is producing as it were, um, and reproducing and memory. This is how she's keeping these memories alive. But does God hear is the question. And I think through the film, you know, is, is this, does this resonate? Does this have, you know, the effect of, in a sense, perpetuating this culture that she's so dearly committed to, but, but, you know, is getting, you know, further and further away. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because that's on the one hand, there's this idea, the idea of haunting is, you know, it speaks to the idea of a kind of persistence of something, something that won't go away. But then on the other hand, there very much, I think is here the sense or the anxiety that, that these things are being lost, that something is kind of departing or, or, or leaving. Um, yeah. Oh, there's so many good things to say. Yeah. Here. So there's a preservation aspect to this film. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I hadn't seen it in a very long time. And, and toward the end there, there's um, an older actor who I should probably know who he is, who sings a very well-known yeah. Yiddish folk song. It's mm. called Oifen Pirpechik. And it's, uh, you know, when I heard it, it, it all kind of flooded back to me, and I am going to admit it. I actually started to cry. Right, mm-hmm. the it brings something, and that story. There's a story that Roy Nathanson tells, um, as an you know acting in the film. He tells about how he's a, you know he's a free thinker and he's an atheist, yeah. and yet you know something was missing in his life, and eventually he sort of stumbled on a synagogue and he felt at home, but then he was conflicted because he doesn't believe anymore. And, and he needed to still kind of be in that space. Uh, and so, you know, he secretly, when his whole family would go to sleep, he'd, he'd study Talmud on his own, right. You know, in, and, and it would give him some sense of, of connection, some sense of, of belonging. And I think, that, you know, it's something that this film is also trying to do. It's trying to kind of create that uh, repository for mm. people like me or Ackerman to go back to, to revisit, to still have a place mm. to go when kind of in- increasingly all of those other associations are lost. Yeah. And I mean, I love the idea that, that you put it, at least it's like the question of it does God hear though, because I feel like that, that captures this tension at the heart of the film where on the one hand, there is very much this sense of something persisting, but on the other hand, I don't know, both the kind of awareness of it not persisting, but then maybe also a kind of, how to say it, the pull that's evident in so many of these immigrant stories about the kind of the lure of the ideal America that is beyond the history that has been so kind of crushing and oppressive in different ways, right? And not specifically because of of the Jewish history, but because of the history of external oppression. Um, And so I don't know, yeah, this, this idea of the film sort of wanting, how to say it, capturing the kind of split at the heart of the figure of the immigrant in so many ways. And of course, that's not unique to this film. Ackerman is dealing with this as a question 
um, more and more in the latter half of her career, actually. But the the idea that you have specifically in that scene that you talk about there, uh, at least with Roy Nathanson, which I love, I thought that was such an incredible sequence, that the idea of the one hand of being pulled towards the sort of freedom and um, openness of a kind of the newness of America, right? And this is, of course, and someone like a, the philosopher I work on, Stanley Cavell, has talked about this extensively. Many people have, right? The, I, the fact of regardless of America's absolutely kind of failed history of, of achieving this project uh, in reality with slavery as its original sin, the idea of America standing in for so many immigrants is a kind of the, the new world, right? The world where um, we would be free of these kinds of oppressions. And yet that necessarily comes at the cost of a loss of tradition, right? A loss of connection. And so it really has this kind of either or split feeling at the center of it, which I think maps interestingly onto even the kind of comic tragic registers here, right? This feeling of like, there's no middle ground. We're either in this kind of like high state of comic kind of, not exactly denial of the state of affairs, but a kind of like mocking distance from the state of affairs that wants to sort of wants to deny it. But then on the other hand, this kind of like high emotional um, placement within these very often very tragic uh, narratives. And we also haven't talked about this too, and I'd be interested to hear people's sense of this, is if these kind of monologue stories, if they read to people as how to say it as kind of uh, dramatically affecting, or if they read to people as a kind of like representative archetypal uh, form of storytelling and, and they don't have to be split, but I've heard critics refer to them as both or differently. So I'm interested to hear people's thoughts about that, but yeah, the sense of split, I guess was what I was trying to get at there. <laughs> I mean, I definitely did not take the stories as, you know, uh, being straightforwardly affecting in that, or mm -hmm. meant to meaning to be straightforwardly affecting in that way, especially just because the, as I mentioned, the performance style is, it's quite there. The, the delivery is quite theatrical. Everyone hyper enunciates everything. Maybe I'm wrong about this, Kate, but um, on the subject of, you know, isolation and community, I got the feeling from this first viewing that uh, throughout the first three quarters, we're sort of alternating between these monologues and these, um, and these bits, I'm just going to call them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then as we get sort of, as the film carries on, we get to the outdoor space, which also, by the way, the, the, the setup of the outdoor space with the, um, with the uh, vegetation around them reminded me of, uh, of, of the, of Pina's staging actually. Oh yeah. There is some staging like that too. That's right. Yeah. Um, just wanted to, just wanted to put a flag on that. Um, but it certainly feels like the, 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 that sense of like the, the isolation kind of breaks down like as mm. uh, over the course of the film, sort of the individuals we see monologuing sort of start to talk to each other and yeah. they all, and a lot of them end up in this sort of more communal space, but it doesn't necessarily make things feel less haunted. No. Yeah. If anything, it has the opposite effect. Well, I mean, you have figures like, like the, the, the notion of suicide starts to emerge. You have at least a couple of characters reference suicide in that latter section. Um, you still have the, the figure, and, and we also haven't mentioned this, but the characters, the actors often play multiple characters here. So the actors are often not tied to individuals, which links it to something like the 80s that Ackerman had done earlier. Again, this kind of Brechtian move, right? And and one of them, a young male actor uh, late in the film there, even though, again, you have, it seems like this sort of lovely communal setting. 
it breaks off to have a monologue from him talking about how he's absolutely dead inside that like he's he's nauseated by the sense of looking at the mirror and seeing himself as a kind of normal functioning human body in the wake of of the show and everything that's happened and and sort of his his interminable kind of pull towards suicide and so the film even as it moves towards the sense of community is still very uh yes marked very kind of painful in the in the latter section um and can I yeah. also say I I did not notice the emphasis on on suicide when I first saw this film, and I, I didn't know. notice it in La Ba in the first time I watched I this know. film. And so, her own act of suicide has had me reflect very differently on the extent to which these this theme is emphasized in in both of of these films in Histoire d'Amérique and then later in La Ba. Absolutely. Um, it's it's haunting, actually, particularly in Lebon. And we can come back and talk about it there. But I feel like Lebon reads differently in the wake of Ackerman's suicide than it did before, for sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, let me just skim my notes here and see what else we, we should make sure we talk about with them. Um, well, we haven't talked about the ending of, um, of Histoire d'Amérique, which is... Uh, I think important for there's there's different things that happen in the ending here and then the other thing we haven't talked about specifically is the the relation between the humorous kind of sequences and the monologues as the kind of key tension of the film right the pull between humor and um and the tragic but uh i have my thoughts about the ending but does anybody so, uh, want to say anything can we review what the ending is for, for oh play? yes of course yeah um so at the end of the film the um Let's see, they're all outside with the kind of meal that takes place and it's nighttime. And oh man, that sequence is shot so beautifully because it's uh, a thunderstorm is happening in the background and there's the lights swinging over their heads at night that there's these like light bulbs that have been hung in the field swinging over their heads, but behind them in the distance, you frequently see kind of thunder and lightning and it's so beautiful. But then at a certain point, and, and also to speak of the haunting, there'll be very strange moments where characters are speaking to each other and the lights will suddenly go off above their head. And just this kind of strange sense of a, a clear, a feeling of an ending imposing uh, itself. And um, But then it cuts at one point and it's the next morning. And the chairs are still sort of out there. Maybe they're a bit more scattered, but there's chairs there and not as many people, but there's some of the people are still there. And at a certain point, a, a very elderly man is walking around with a suitcase announcing that he wants to go back to Warsaw. He's had enough of this country. He wants to go back to Warsaw. And he asks uh, one young one man if he can give him directions to Stanton Street so that he can get he can leave on his way back to Warsaw. And this becomes another kind of seemingly comedic uh, scenario where he tries to remember this man. He can't. He pulls someone else in. She tells a kind of long meandering story, and then she also can't remember. And more and more characters come in. No one can ultimately remember the way to give him directions to get home, which is of course you know, very important, this idea of the desire to go home from the immigrant and no one can remember. And that maps on to the kind of connection with the sort of prayer, the idea that that the ability to remember will will lead you back to God, even if you, um, how to say that, not the ability to remember because you might forget everything, but at the end of it, you have to remember God. And that is the way back. And so anyway, here, here it's, we start to see the sense of it being a memory being lost, very threatened in this final scene. But then the final payoff is as this um, old man, he gives up on the on the idea of going home and he sits down in a chair and tells uh, a, a kind of monologue story to the camera about how 
an old story about, um, it's a joke kind of story about a man who is a butcher and there's a long line outside of his butcher shop, people waiting for hours and a man comes in wanting to buy something. He's waited so long, he gets up to the counter and then over and over again, he asks the butcher for very specific cuts of like fine meat, you know, like filet mignon or duck or whatever it is. But the, but each time the butcher's like, of course, I don't have that. You know, just ask me for what I do have or ask me for something that I do have. And the man won't do that. He seems incapable of just asking that question. He can only give specific uh, instances. And so finally, the butcher gets fed up and kicks this man out and the man leaves. And the butcher says, you know, what a fool that man is, but how he remembers. And the idea that this man, it's, it's the film kind of remarking on the ability to remember this thing. But again, there's such a tension there between the kind of importance of being able to remember something is a link to the past or a link to this other world, but that it also seems to make him kind of inflexible or literally unable to get something to eat in this scenario. And so I just, I love this ending, this tension between memory and forgetting and what it allows or disallows. Yeah. That I mean, it's a beautiful story about the butcher and it's beautifully told mind you. I, I, I was um, thinking this before that we also have the story of the the news, the newspaper seller who only sells yesterday's paper. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So because the past is always better than the present, and besides, the present here, present is here. So why do we need to read about it? Um, <laughs> which is just genius. But you know, the past is always better than the present in our memories, right? And and there's a very strong feeling in the film that you can't go back, right? It's gone. Mm -hmm. That's very, very clear. It's articulated by several of the characters and several of their stories. And it's also very much part of this old man, you know, I need to go back. This country is making me crazy. There's no heart. Yeah. You have to, well, you have to have a heart of stone to live in this yeah. country. Um, and and yet nobody can direct him. There, There's the old joke about, you know, three Jews, four opinions, right? So, that, so they're just <laughs> instantiating, you know, in, in the giving the directions uh, that they can't, you know, get him back to Stanton Street. And the directions are absurd, right? You're, you're yeah. going up these hills that, of course, don't exist in New York City. And it, you know, it's just, you know, and they just keep going and they can't stop. Yeah, turn, turn turn left at my brother-in-law's house and then go around his garage. Exactly. But don't talk to him on the way. Exactly, because he'll just, you know, you won't get out of there. You know, so it's it, they're just delightfully absurd. But, you know, the you can't go back and there's no going back. You can't go home. And all you have is memory. And a kind of invocation to remember, right? So, I mean, you know, one of the things that we're taught, we were taught as, you know, post-Holocaust Jews was you never forget. Um, and, you know, Jewish tradition is so much obsessed with uh, mem memory, but specifically memory of tragedy. I mean, yeah. the, the song, the Yiddish song that is, that is sung, this one, Oifen Pripetchik, is a, about a rabbi who's teaching his kids his sons really, to read Hebrew. Um, and you want to learn to read Hebrew because you're going to study Torah and, and it's going to enrich your life, but it's also, it, you want to do this so that you learn about the suffering of your people. These are the lyrics of the word. Mm. You learn about the suffering of your people and it becomes your burden to carry. And I'm thinking, in what universe would that encourage children to learn, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the Hebrew alphabet? But this is so that that this is a classic Jewish folk song. It's the one that brought mm -hmm. tears to my eyes, right? Mm -hmm. So so it's this very bitter 
um, relationship to memory. It's it's necessary. It's required. It's relig- It's a religious obligation, as much as a, an historical one. And yet, you know, memory itself brings a lot of pain. Yeah. There's um, something about the state with you know, including this lightning storm and the staging with the with the tables and that as Kate mentioned, sort of scattered uh, near the end of the near the end of the film. There's something very like Bardo like about mm-hmm. this about the uh, for lack of a better term the vibe of the last uh, the, the last section of the film I think where it, it seems like re- you're really being impressed upon the idea that these these figures are sort of trapped between life and death and past and present and you know memory and living reality um, in a way that I found uh, very affecting actually after all I guess well and uh, yeah I mean and the idea too of the the kind of pain that memory, is inevitably tied up with here. I mean, I think it, I, I, you know, I, I mean, it speaks as well. And it's certainly, I'm not the first or only one to say this. This is very much runs through the commentary on this film, but is part of the kind of connection between, uh, you know, Jewish humor and, and pain, right? This idea that the film very obliquely, really, because these things are never specified, but obliquely in bringing up the two, two ideas here, humor on the one hand and tragedy on the other, it becomes a kind of commentary on the fact of, the humor as as both being a way to respond to this kind of history of, of pain um, and kind of maintain it. I think Ackerman has a great quote here where she says, these jokes only exist because of the tragedy. They are a way of denying it by means of derision, what is happening, of laughing at it. Not exactly. They are above all a distancing, a distancing strategy to tame the unbearable, even sometimes the intolerable. When history or histories become difficult to bear, there remains only one thing to be done, to stage oneself in one's own misfortune and laugh. And so this idea of a kind of like performance and uh, laughter is a way to sort of handle this. But then I think it's interesting, I think, Elisa, you pointed this out maybe in a certain sense earlier too, where the humor then inevitably becomes kind of, I mean, in fact, it is a bit strong, but that it it always bears this stamp. It always bears this trace of the pain. It's that the humor is very much caught up in these things, even as, a, even as it is a way to kind of laugh, right? You know, the old man who tells the story about uh, how he keeps wearing terrible shoes that hurt his feet so that he can, at the end of the day, despite all of the terrible things that are wrong with his life, he can have the moment of taking off those shoes and feeling relief, right? It's the idea that the joke is, like, the joke is, of course, that the shoes cause him pain, but he keeps that so he can have the relief from the pain. <laughs> it's just so perfect. <laughs> I mean, I think I think uh, there's a way in which uh, Ackerman was very wedded to the misery of it, and mm-hmm. uh, while she did have, I think, a good sense of humor and a good sense of it, but she, I mean, it's it's not just a way of enduring the pain; it's a way. Yeah. It, it is actually, you know, a way of la- of laughing at it, of you know, yeah. of of taking a, a good deal of its power away, and I don't think. My sense of Ackerman is that she wasn't prepared to have hmm. the you know the pain lessened that 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 wasn't an option, and and I I do think that that is a a part of Jewish humor right I mean of course hmm. it's you know flies in the face of a, a lot of misery and misfortune and it does so um, like properly. Um, I don't know, reducing it. It does it, it does its job, right, in 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 effect and um makes it not just bearable, but like it actually sort of re- yeah. lessens 
uh, its power. And I think that wasn't something that Ackerman was very interested in. I mean, the power mm-hmm. needed to remain. Um, and yeah. it was intractable, right? It was uh, inconsolable. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting because I think uh, this is maybe just a broader question before we turn to LeBob, but yeah, I mean, does it feel like that her her comedic strain is kind of restrained here then in this film? Because I think there are many other films where her comedic kind of chops are are much sort of more open and free, right? And it's like, it's like that is maybe you can feel the gist of it here, but it maybe doesn't quite, because of the kind of context of the diaspora and the kind of Jewish history, it doesn't feel like it can be as light or, yeah. Does that kind of maybe get at something there? I think that you're talking about, Elisa? That's so interesting. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure it out because of course there are moments where it's actually laugh, laugh out oh, loud yeah. funny. <laughs> um, and you, you know, you really get that feel of, of the humor, but there are plenty of moments where you're just kind of watching it unfold and trying, you know, mm-hmm. analyzing it, thinking um, in part, I was think I, I often think in that film, well, why doesn't this work? Or why mm-hmm. isn't it funnier? Um, and that's odd because, I mean, Ackerman always had a, a little bit of a flat-footedness in relation to mm-hmm. humor, but that was what was funny, you know? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, oh my. Um, and, you know, her sense of excess is fantastic in several films. And in this one, she doesn't indulge it, it seems. Yeah. I, I yeah. wonder if it's maybe just not as clean uh, a lineup with her, um, with the comic sensibilities that I think she's strongest at. Like her sense of physical comedy is very yeah. funny, and her sense of kind of language games are also very funny uh, throughout her That's films. True. And there isn't really necessarily room for that with this kind of execution. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Jewish, a lot of Jewish humor is verbal. That's for sure. Um, and it does come across. I mean, you do get, you definitely get it in the film. You understand, like, uh, what's the guy who's saying, uh, I'm good. Everything's good. What do you mean everything's good? Your, I heard your life was terrible. No, I'm, I'm in the morning I wake up, I'm good and tired. I'm, you know, I'm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> my that wife is. nags me. I'm good and, good and sick of yeah. her. I'm good, you know, my life is good. You know, like they're all, you know, those verbal jokes. But I guess in part, she's working outside of her own language, which, I mean, she yeah. spoke English perfectly, but she didn't prefer to speak English. She would have, mm. like, when I met her, she would have been so much happier if I spoke French. Um, mm. She didn't prefer English, no matter how good her English was. And, and you know, all of these are happening either in English or Yiddish. I don't know if she had Yiddish to, I can't imagine she didn't have any, but I don't think it was mm. a spoken um, yeah. language for her. So yeah, part of it is language. There is a little physical comedy in it. I mean, there's a little bit, yeah. you know, the revolving door. <laughs> I know I was going to say the revolving door is maybe my favorite bit in the whole, uh, the whole film. Cause it's Ackerman. Like that to me is somebody <laughs> unable to figure out the revolving door. And then of course the joke taking the like hard right swerve at the end of asking the guy, tell me, tell me before I go crazy. How do you, how do you shave so fast in this country? It's like, it's just incredible. <laughs> but uh, no, I was just going to add that she, for the, for the uh, letters, when she discovered them, when she was working on rewriting them, she first wrote them into French uh, and adapted them that way. And then rewrote them again into English. Well, maybe that's the that issue. Way. Yeah. I mean, it's, she, for her, it was always about sort of trying to make the Yiddish sound, um, uh like smooth and comfortable in in the english um and it's interesting she talks uh, i was gonna mention this in relation to Lava, but she um 
talked in an interview about Labaw about the fact of uh, the way that sort of money shapes her relationship to uh, kind of pre-production for films and the fact that with Labaw she had, there was no money, which we can say later, but there was no money. So there she felt quite free. Whereas in Histoire d'Amérique, she says, you know, we had, we had a good amount of money to make the film. But because of that, I always feel very constrained to do a lot of writing in advance. So she says, for me, money is a constraint of writing before it is a freedom in shooting. Um, and so, she, you know, she says that the writing was extensive for uh, Histoire d'Amérique. And you really get that sense in the film. I mean, it really it feels more like a written a written film in some senses than a kind of conceived in the experience of shooting film, which I mean, maybe that's a bit unfair, but it just feels like a very heavily kind of constructed film in advance. I think the words are all chosen very carefully and, and it's very um, verbally full. It's like <laughs> just words everywhere. In this film. So the, this is interesting because she says um, to make a film, you must write. She's written mm -hmm. this, right? You, you write. Yeah before you make a film and you write kind of through making the film and you write even for, I mean, she wrote for La Bas, just didn't use any of it. Right. In the film, yeah. she talks about how she lost her, the, oh, her yeah. notes. <laughs> um, but she, you know, I think she, the writing, I guess it must've been the Bintel brief uh, in the forwards as my grandmother used to call the forward uh, newspaper. That was the newspaper that my grandparents read, the Favids. And I think these letters and stories were part of the Bintela brief, which mm -hmm. was very famous at the time mm -hmm. of, of migrant stories. So mm -hmm. um, I guess translating them doubly might actually be part of that sort of, you know, yeah. uh, alienation effect that is created, uh, which is fine. I think it's, I think yeah. it's actually good. I think she made some really brilliant choices for that film, but it, it's, you know, it, it's certainly not true to kind of an, you know, a New York Im immigrant yeah. experience and why should it be right? It's like every Ackerman film, it's thoroughly hers. I guess it's as good a time as any to segue to our third and final feature of uh, this month. It's called La Bas from 2006, aka Down There. Kate, maybe, I, I, again, I, I hate to play a recent, recent film uh, thought association that has nothing to do with Ackerman. But, um, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I went to see the new restoration of David Lynch's Inland Empire. And it, oh, got, yeah. and it got me, me thinking about <laughs> yeah. It got me thinking about early to early to mid two thousands uh, directors mm -hmm. working with consumer grade digital video, <laughs> um, which I assume is also what we're looking at here. But you'll have to confirm that for me. Yes, oh, yeah, <laughs> it definitely is. Um, I mean, I do feel like in a funny thing, somebody could design a bingo thing for our podcast that are like, how many times can Simon and Kate make completely <laughs> obscure connections between David Lynch and Chantal Ackerman? <laughs> it's like a game we play on yeah. this podcast. But no, you're totally right that I hadn't thought of that, the connection. And they both come out the same year too, right? 2006 is, um, yeah, yeah, both of them. And, uh, and it was funny to hear um, Elisa talk about, um, you know, how that she had money for Histoire d'Amérique and that, that created constraints. And here, of course, we have a, a, a shooting format that allows for total, t total essentially self-emancipation in a, in, a, in a sense. So Kate, what does she do with that? 
Um, oh, what does she do with that? Well, so the film, the, the film is uh, broadly deals with the kind of month that she spends in Tel Aviv uh, in 2005. She was there for a teaching appointment at the university. And uh, her producer, the producer of her documentary films, uh, a person named Xavier Cagnot, uh, had wanted her to make a film about Israel for some time, had been asking her to, to consider doing this um, because he thought it would be a kind of important addition to the documentary she'd previously made about kind of studies of time and space. And we've only talked about one of those so far, which is Dest, the first one. Uh, later, we'll talk about um, De L'Autre Côté and... Sud. Um, but this film, Labah, is often considered the kind of end of this sort of quadrilogy of documentary films. But anyway, her producer was wanting her to consider doing this. She, in her words, found the idea of making a film on Israel repulsive. She really didn't want to do that. Um, but then she was in this apartment, and as she says, she kind of just happened to find a shot one day with this consumer-grade camera she had brought with her, uh, and this started to inspire her, and she kind of started to work through the process of, of you know, writing the film while shooting it and sort of drawing on these ideas and her experience. And the film is, uh, yeah, how to describe the film? The film primarily consists of visual shots looking out of the window, the, the side uh, wall windows of her um, apartment that she's in in Israel. And you see through the windows, which are frequently primarily covered in blinds, um, you see through the blinds the figures who live on the um, opposing balconies in other buildings. So you often see people on other sides of the, uh, the street from her. Sometimes you kind of see the ocean. Um, and the, the film, she will occasionally leave the apartment and go to other places, and we can talk about that more. But by and large, the film takes place almost exclusively in this darkened apartment with the camera looking out of the windows. And as the film unfolds, you kind of realize you hear Ackerman sometimes moving around in the apartment, but we never get a reverse shot into the apartment where you see her. She appears a little bit in reflection late in the film, but by and large, the interior quote of the apartment is a bit of a mystery. Um, and then as the film unfolds, she will talk in voiceover about a number of different things. Ultimately, these kinds of ruminations tend to revolve around the idea of the impossibility of saying something, quote, about Israel. Um, and, and she gets at that from many different kind of angles. Um, she talks a lot about her family, her personal history. Um, yeah, various things. So we can dig into all of that. But um, but I don't know, uh, Elisa, should we ask uh, Simon again for his broad <laughs> <laughs> overview as the, as the newbie? Oh, God. <laughs> Um, I mean, this is the one that I definitely was looking forward most to hearing uh, people's thoughts on because it seems it seemed to it hit me at least as the most sort of I think something that a lot of Ackerman's films have in common is like trying to trying to access the inaccessible or express the inexpressible or or it I, I think as as maybe the case here find your way around um, an impossible obstacle which for for her is you know to not be to not get mired in you know, the discourse that she just is not interested in. Um, I find it fascinating that her way around it, it like th that her chosen strategy is just to essentially not leave the apartment and which on, on its on paper is actually sort of funny to me, uh, but the film is not at all funny. No, it's not a funny, not a funny film, very heavy film. Um, so yeah, Lisa, what's your experience with this film? I, I assume you had seen it uh, probably when it first came out. I've seen it. Yeah. Several times. It was, it was of course good to rewatch it. Um, all of, I mean, it's always good to rewatch an Ackerman yeah. film. It never <laughs> fails. Um, and in part at this point also just to be able to hear her voice again, because it's such a, such a unique and particular voice and kind of way of phrasing things. But I mean, 
I I completely understand why she wanted to stay away from making a film about Israel or about, as she says, the Middle East. Um, as a Jew, I think uh, her politics are quite different from my politics, for example, where she was kind of a, I, I want to say almost a proto-Zionist. Like she wasn't a, you know, strong uh, Zionist and she, and she had, uh, reservations, many, many, many reservations, but she was a Zionist in her way. And she didn't want to make a Zionist film. She understood how problematic that was, but she really, I don't think she would have been able to make a very different kind of film. So the fact that she chooses this is actually one of the most, in a way, the most political decisions she could have made given um, what she's doing, because actually it's a very critical film of Israel. It's, I mean, you know, she went there to teach the boycott and divestment movement already existed. She certainly was not part of that. Right. Um, and she went to Israel many times and um, she, there's something there. There was definitely something there for her, something important for her um, being surrounded by, by other Jews and, and being able to kind of relax into that, even though, of course, Israel is not a very relaxing um, place to be for other, for you know, for other other aspects of that experience. But she, instead of showing her Israel, instead of showing, you know, she has amazing friends there, she uh, had community there, she she imprisons herself almost almost you know, in direct parallel to the way in which Israel itself by then was imprisoning itself, you know, building walls. I mean, who builds walls? Who creates their own ghetto? Um, it, it's, she duplicates that that experience on a personal level. And I, I, I find it very touching, impressive, actually, that she she was able to dig deeper than her the desires that she projected onto onto Israel for you know a place where she could potentially belong and of course she does she, you know she didn't belong there and didn't belong anywhere this was something she reiterated in the film but over and over again but she actually communicates something about uh you know that feeling of enclosure that one gets in a very tiny country that has built a wall around itself and an ex excessive military apparatus. So I, I think it's ingenious, actually. I don't know, you know, had she gone all around uh, Israel or maybe Palestine, maybe other parts of the Middle East, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it would have been as interesting or complex or, uh, dare I say, um, you know, critical a film. And, and it turns out it is quite critical in its way. I feel I I find it a little shocking, Elisa, that I have read so much about this film and I have never once come across anybody making that uh, argument about what the film is doing. And it's so completely there. Once you point it out, I'm shocked that I have never thought about it that way. Yeah. That's really my job, isn't, that. it? isn't that why yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes, exactly. You have to blow our minds. Um, the No, I mean, really, it's a, I, I really like that reading of the film a lot. And I think yeah, I mean, I was I, not hesitant, but I was I was not sure how the discussion of this film would go because it, 
you know, in general, in the podcast, we don't tend to be uh, uniformly positive about everything Ackerman does. But I feel like this film has maybe more questions hanging over it in terms of its kind of politics and its stance in relation to her work than a lot of her other films do. I mean, even I think Marion Schmidt in her book about Ackerman, you know, notes that this film like that, that you can understand why Ackerman is so reticent to kind of quote unquote say anything about Israel. And, and we should talk more about what she's all of the ways in which she's doing things in this film to to kind of formally deny the possibility of saying something. Um, but anyway, that she can understand why Ackerman avoids this kind of taking a clear political stance, you know, that all it would show is one's own bias and that it would be dated immediately and all of these things. Um, but that at the same time, the film kind of retreating into this space of sort of personal um, and, and ambiguous ambiguousness or indecision or reticence maybe actually sort of avoids the thing that Ackerman's films, the documentary films particularly, had up to that point been so defined by, which was this sort of attraction to the other or the being drawn to to an other, even as even as the other in Ackerman's films is often kind of maintained in their otherness. There's no sort of, you know, conflation of self and other, but that here maybe Ackerman is backing away from that. And I feel like I, I, I don't, I didn't really agree with that reading of the film and I wasn't exactly sure why. And I, but I feel like your, your reading of it gets at it perfectly here that the kind of personal sort of sense of stuckness really does resonate with the kind of larger um, social political scene in Israel in a really important way yeah yeah i mean it's 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 self-imposed you know this isn't jafar panahi mm -hmm. this is not mm -hmm. a film under house arrest right i mean mm -hmm. this is this is somebody who's getting invitations to do things who's actually there teaching she's obviously going out in, in the world yeah. we understand this um and yet the film basically reenacts uh in some sense a self-imposed imprisonment right mm -hmm. um but isn't it isn't it amazing how uh yet again the Jewish protagonist gets to be the victim. <laughs> but okay, we don't have to go there. I mean, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, honestly, we can. I'm, I'm very interested to hear any and all thoughts. But um, yeah, I, I mean, the film is so complicated, right? Like there is so much uh, going on here because the idea too, that even as she closes herself off in this space, the entire film is structured around the impulse to look out. Right. And I think many people have read the film through the through the more auteurist lens of connecting it to Ackerman's kind of history in her films of, you know, the autobiographical tendency, the kind of tendency to speak about her own sort of subjective relationship to the world or, or the lack of a subjective relationship to the world. This struggle, as she puts it very eloquently at one point in the film, this fact of when she was young, um, because her mother was so uh, frightened of letting her go out into the streets, of having to spend hours at the window watching everyone else play and so as an adult she still kind of goes to the window and just finds that all it does is reflect back on herself she just gets up into herself the more she looks out at the world and this whole film is dealing with that so there have been these readings of the film that i think heavily privilege the um the kind of personal and subjective and i do think that's absolutely there and we should talk about it but i think it has sometimes been to the detriment of, of putting the film in a kind of position like a dialogue with larger questions around it and and one thing that occurred to me while watching it this time was that i've you know people have tended to to speak about the kind of the fact of the camera looking out the window at the um 
other people on their balconies as a kind of reference to voyeurism, right? We have the, the specter of a rear window here, all of these things. But to me, that actually doesn't really capture what's going on here. It's like the voyeurism thing isn't quite right because as, um, now I'm forgetting which critic makes this distinction, but somebody makes this distinction uh, that points out the fact that Ackerman herself, the figure of Ackerman in the film, is um, separated from the camera. The camera and, and us are the ones who are looking out of the window all of the time. She is very clearly being indicated to us to be a kind of separate vantage somewhere else. She's either moving around the apartment or she's speaking in the voiceover or whatever, but there's a clear disjunction between these two sort of gazes. The shots out of the window are not a point of view shot by and large. Um, but yeah, but go ahead, Alyssa. But yes and, yes and no. There's a story that Claire Atherton tells about the footage where she was, you know, editing La Ba. The, the other two films that we were talking about in the podcast, Atherton was not the editor, but in this one, she was, and she was, she, she remembers one day working with some footage that she hadn't kind of paid attention to before. And it just wasn't working. Things were not working. The, the something about the footage was, I don't know, not speaking to her. And it turns out that a friend of Ackerman's had been in the apartment and, and had like rolled the camera um, and that it, you know, it wasn't the same as what Ackerman was shooting. It has, was missing the point of view. And so, so certainly Claire Atherton's perspective on it was that it's very much Ackerman's kind of embodied view, even if she's, you know, doing the dishes or brushing her teeth yeah. or whatever, while the camera's rolling that, it, that she's, you know, the, there's no shot that doesn't kind of have her in it. And I think, I think it's very, see, I don't, I don't see her other documentaries about the others as anything other than herself either. I don't yeah, think, me too. I agree. I don't actually <laughs> yeah. think, I mean, even, if, even, you know, if we're talking about the South, uh, um, sued and the, and, and lynching, uh, or if we're talking about Mexican migrants across borders, or if we're talking about, you know, the, the fall of the wall in Eastern Europe, to me, and, may, you know, maybe it's overdetermined in my view, uh, because I do all this work on first person, but I don't, I don't think she sees anything outside of, of this experience. And these themes are her themes. They are very personal to her, right? It, the lynching could be her could be the Jews, could be, you know, a pogrom, right? For her, this is where she would connect to those crossing borders, exile, right? And so I think it, it, the, the gaze is never, I might even say never properly othered. Well, I agree. And, and, and I haven't, I, there's an article that I have that's floating out in the world there where I kind of talk about this, that like the conflation of Ackerman's ethics with um, the kind of Levinasian focus on the other, I think is, is not the correct conflation. I don't, I actually don't think that Ackerman works. I think she's very interested in what Levinas has to say, but I don't think it works purely as a hermeneutic for her, uh, her filmmaking. But, but I mean, it's fascinating because I was going to say, I think I, I completely agree with you. And I agree, I agree with the, the characterization that Atherton makes, which is that the camera is, of course, Ackerman sort of, it has her embodied presence evident there. It always does in the way she chooses these kind of like beautiful images, right? But I think the film is so insistent on the fact that that, that you are meant to be aware, at least, of this, this, dunk, this blah, disjunction often of her kind of physically being distant from the camera, even as she set up the shot, that for me, it, it, it inevitably invokes the specter of surveillance more than it invokes the specter of voyeurism, right? And I think I only really saw it this time because we had just recently watched um, Man with the Suitcase for uh, a 
an earlier podcast episode where she does this thing where she pulls out the video camera and sets it up looking out uh, onto the street outside to keep track of the coming and goings of this man who's in her apartment. And so she sort of sets herself up as connected to this video camera um, to look at it. But even, or even as she's not looking at it, it runs all the time in the background. And I don't know, for me, like, this is an interesting question of like, is this, I don't know, is it is it a bridge too far to kind of pull up the idea of surveillance as so integral to like the kind of Israeli state apparatus? Or is that maybe just like a connection that is not something on Ackerman's mind? You know, I, like, these are questions that I have watching this film. Oh, I think they're reasonable questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know that's it. We, we're, we all don't have an answer. <laughs> I, have, I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts. Well, um, we, we may return to that, but I wanted to ask uh, both of you about the aesthetic, which we haven't talked about so much. Um, the fact that she's here shooting on consumer grade digital video, which to me has a profound effect on, you know, there's a, there's many shots of her, of the camera pointed. We're not only looking out at her neighbors or whatever, we're looking out at her neighbors through, uh, through a you know, semi-translucent blind of some kind. And the, but the video, the, the basic quality of the video is so poor that it struggles to render even just the blinds themselves. So you, much of the film actually ends up being sort of obscured in this digital fuzz. That's actually part of my thinking that it's neither voyeurism nor surveillance. That, I mean, she's exploiting, you know, the, let's say, affordances of this technology um, to not look. So in a way, like nobody's identified, nobody's identifiable. Um, it, she's not particularly interested in the goings on. Simply the fact of goings on is enough, right? That there is life, that people seem to be living normal lives. And, you know, there's absolutely no particularity to this watching um, and not a great deal of pleasure. So voyeurism... Um, or surveillance. And so I, I feel that maybe, you know, maybe the tech, the, D, the DV camera that she's using is exactly the right tool for this, which is to say, yeah, it can't cope with the complexity. There's the matchstick blinds and it can, you know, the light in Tel Aviv, even in winter, she's clearly there in winter, but the light in Tel Aviv is very bright. Um, it can't really deal with the differences in contrast. It can't, it sort of mores a bit. Um, so it turns into almost an impressionistic image, which is rare in in film or video, um, kind of painterly. I think people have commented on that. I, you know, everybody hates that word because it means almost nothing. But, you know, it does look like, it, it, you know, it looks like uh, an interest in frames and framing in the possibility of seeing and yet not seeing, right? It It's a disc course on the visual, but it doesn't appear to me to be either a surveillance image or a voyeuristic one. Yeah, I think that that actually gets at uh, the, the tension here very well. I agree. I think it's like that surveillance is kind of invoked to then be backed away from is I think captures it very clearly. And I, the idea of the, um, of the aesthetic, as Simon says, with the with the digital here, it's it's both the digital and the blinds. I think work together to yeah to both invoke the idea of a kind of impressionistic image, as as Elisa says, um, where the image itself is almost yeah it's a breaking down in a certain sense. 
um, which, you know, uh, scholars like Laura Marx, of course, have talked about this as kind of the haptic image, right? The idea where the image gives you less information and thus kind of draws you in in the sense it makes you feel like you could touch it or something, which I don't know. I'm, I'm never, I'm not entirely convinced about that all the time, but I do feel like the idea of a kind of the image giving you less information here, I think is very important um, to, as Elisa points out, the kind of discourse that the film is setting up on the activity of, of showing, for example, the idea that the film is supposed to show you something about Israel is, is the film is doing everything it can to deny that. And um, as, uh, Bill Arning who's written about the, um, the film for uh, the collection that was released about Ackerman's installation works, um, as part of the series in the 2000s there. He, he writes there about this, he notices the fact that the um, the lights in the apartment always need to, it's not just that Ackerman has the lights off because of this idea of a sort of like depression kind of space, which we should talk about because the psychological and emotional resonances are, are important here too. But that it's not just that the lights are off for that reason, the lights have to be off inside the apartment in order to let the kind of digital camera um, register the bright light outside, right? Because early digital photography like couldn't do extremes in the dynamic range. It had to be kind of all dark or all light. You couldn't have both. So she has to have the lights off inside. Um, and the idea then that the blinds, the blinds contribute to this as well, right? The blinds cut the light coming in from outside. And so even though the blinds seem to be something that kind of like frames or blocks or cuts off access to what we're quote unquote being shown. Um, despite that fact, it actually is what is allowing us to see out of the window. And this of course echoes with her, with the kind of statements that she makes throughout about this idea of sort of like, well, the, what is perspective? What perspective here? And the answer, the implication being always that like, you might be able to give an answer about the question and play here, but it will always just be an answer. It will never be the answer. And that that's, that's, it makes sense, right? That you have to lose something in order to ha to gain something here. There's no kind of like purely objective overview of some problem where you could stand outside of it and say that this is the right or the wrong scenario, right? And I, I love the fact that Ackerman finds such beautiful kind of ways to do that through the technology, through the aesthetic, through all of it. It's just, yeah, it's masterful. I mean, it's it's this is classic Ackerman to be deceptively simple, right? To appear as if there's just nothing going on here. I just, you know, locked off the camera and made it happen. And yet conceptually it's endlessly rich and fruitful, right? She's saying um, also, I can't see here. I'm not able, you know, all she keeps saying, is, this is before Facebook, right? All she keeps saying is it's complicated, you know? Like I can't get to the bottom of this. It's, it's, you know, it's too complicated even for me. I know I'm drawn here and, and there's something very wrong. And she's, you know, she's basically showing us in her, in her frame that it's just, she can see and not see. <laughs> she can't quite be there. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Bill Arnie, this is another point from him too, but, but he points out as well that she, I, I guess she was maybe recovering from a kind of illness of some kind when she was there. She references like having bad stomach cramps and people are calling her on the phone early on to see if she's okay. And, um, but I, but I liked his point where, you know, he's kind of saying that like, you know, maybe it's not coincidence that she will, she will mention that she's nauseated or that she's sick to her stomach, you know, regularly throughout the film in relation to these kinds of uh, questions that are being presented to her about her experience, you know, with Israel, with these different things. And I think the film, uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, but um, a kind of key moment in the film happens when I think it's sort of at maybe the halfway point when she uh, goes out for cigarettes one day and she's already been, you know, mostly we've only seen her in the apartment, but she goes out for cigarettes 
uh, or she recounts going out for cigarettes and to discover that there had been a suicide bombing that had taken place near the apartment. Uh, and I believe four people were killed and maybe 50 people were injured. And again, in, in, in normal Ackerman fashion, that's all we hear. We don't get any further kind of details or information about it at all. In fact, I think she leaves oblique that it is a suicide bombing. I think you, it's not even said. It's like that. that's just maybe you could piece that together on your own. Maybe specifically because she, in the dialogue there, links it to the suicide of both her aunt and the suicide of the mother of the uh, writer, Amos Oz, who she references his work uh, a lot throughout this film. Um, but uh, but sorry, why, why did I bring that up? Just the bombing, um, the sense of, oh yeah, this sort of sickness, the sense of Ackerman, um, yeah, that her, her kind of retreating from this world outside, maybe both has these sort of larger kind of like emotional and social and political questions, but then also there's this actual material sort of embodied question of her going out into this space that she found quite dangerous. And, you know, she talks about it in the dialogue saying that I found it, that she's maybe a little ambivalent about framing it this way for herself, but that, you know, she's like, I feel like now when I go outside, when I take the bus, if I go get food, it's, it's like a heroic act. And I think, yeah. Actually, yeah. those are two unrelated things. She tells us about the heroic act um, of living well before we learn anything about this suicide, you know, bombing. You're right. Yes, the suicide attempt to separate. And yeah. she's trying to express simply for her what it is to keep it together. Uh, you know, that everything is just on the verge of unraveling for her all the time, that she is very loosely tied loosely tethered to anything to belonging and you know there are some people in her life who make her feel somewhat tethered but then she sort of drifts off from them and you know comes back for a few days and but but mainly she you know she says she loses her key she loses her you know her way her direction her everything like it, she can't kind of keep her bearings now, this is and, and she actually says um and it's getting harder so this is apart from israel altogether i mean i also know this you know from through friends fr people who were friends with her you know the midnight calls i, I lost my keys again Do you, you know can you get me into my apartment can i sleep at your place you know so she you know she was describing her way of life, the idea that she has to put this apartment back into shape, you know, so is, is kind of almost more than she can bear. So I do think, I think there is something about kind of Israel, Tel Aviv, you know, being, being Jewish there, all that stuff. And I think there's also something she's working out very apart from that, that is also unraveling. Um, and she expresses it so simply and plainly in this film that it just to me anyway it just it's dark yeah and it's i find again having only seen this film once i feel like the relationship between uh you know the, the viewer in the film or like perhaps ackerman's sense of the spectator is maybe a little different than it is in uh in other ackerman films just for the you know, for the fact of she's aware of that most viewers will know that, okay, this is the film where Chantel goes to Israel and, you know, and we follow her there and we, and we presumably get her, get some version of her take on things, which is of course not, uh, not how Ackerman wants, wants to do it. And so there's, there's kind of a more, there's an urgency to her being there. Um, and just the expectation of, of what the content will be like that I, I feel like registers differently from, I think, any other Ackerman film I've seen. 
I think also it sort of, you know, when you're talking about her struggles with dealing with the apartment, like it's, it's inseparable from, I mean, obviously she had her, you know, she, she had a, a personal life and, and, and uh, a personal health issues, et cetera. But in the context of the film, it's, it's, you can't separate those elements. I don't think. Yeah. She, they're kind of, they're kind of mixed here. I think, you know, I think often to, to point to defect, this question of whether like this need to, to, barricade herself in this apartment, whether it comes from a kind of internal impulse or an external impulse, right? I mean, these are the the questions, um, which, you know, read interestingly differently now than maybe in retrospect, if you think about it as, as connected to this kind of question of Israel <laughs> closing itself in. Um, well, I think you have to read it that way, but you also have to remember that this is a, the filmmaker who made La Chambre. It's a filmmaker mm-hmm. who, yeah, exactly. you know, of yeah. all the seven deadly sins she could have chosen, she chose sloth. <laughs> and filmed it in her bed. I mean, yeah, you know, she, it, it's not as if she didn't always display a certain kind of tendency, which was to prefer to shut herself in than to be out there in the world, which is so overwhelming. And, you know, where do you find your bearings? But I think, I think given um, that she, she knew in a way that she was expected to make a film about Israel, right? And that, that somehow she was going to have to find her way, but that, that she found her way to this, for me was a, a real surprise. I didn't, um, I was impressed actually. Well, yeah. And we, and we haven't spoken about it yet so much, but the, I think one of the kind of key ways in which she, she approaches this question of making a film about Israel here is that ultimately what she ends up doing is, you know, not obviously making a film about Israel, but is that even in the kind of the, the monologue she sets up and the, the framing and everything, really what she's often concerned with and talking about is the idea of Israel as a promised land, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The idea of the space where um, that would be the kind of, yeah, the, this, the home that could be gone to, the home that could be safe and could be welcoming. And the idea that what she finds is she kind of works her way through Amos Oz's uh, writing, I think particularly his book, was it A Tale of Love and Darkness, I think, which only came out a few years before this film and apparently was being read by everybody at that time. And, um, you know, she's she's kind of speaking about his work and these narratives of her her aunt who was also mentally ill and had sort of electroshock therapy and, and a number of things before she ended up committing suicide. You know, as she talks about all of these things, the idea that comes out for her is that, you know, Israel the idea that Israel may just as likely end up being another form of exile, that it is not this kind of space that the promised land that it has, has been foretold to be. Instead, it is a space where one just simply feels um, as lost as they do anywhere else. And again, you know, that of course may be the kind of thing that Ackerman would likely to be drawn out of this, but I think there's something really important about it. I think it echoes strongly with this idea of the film it's politics being complicated, but that there is absolutely kind of criticism happening here. I mean, I think Ackerman going to Israel, locking herself in a room and saying the promised land doesn't exist is a very clear way of saying something without saying it in such a clear way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, she maybe um, didn't yeah. even want to admit that fully to herself, but i that's, I guess, what impressed me about the film is that I expected there to be, in some sense, more of an apology for the place, um, the kind of apology that she was known to make. <laughs> and that is not that uncommon, I think, with children of survivors who really would like to believe that, you know, this Jewish homeland is is this important kind of safety. And for her, I mean, she says, you know, it would be, I think she says in an interview, it would be a disaster, you know, this place may not exist 
much longer. And that would be a disaster for me personally. Like for her, it still remains some kind of important um, refuge, even though it clearly is not that. It is not a safe place. And it was, you know, she could not find her her belonging, her sense of belonging there, which, you know, I think she dearly wanted from, from that place. And so I, I guess I almost feel like Laba is, is the film she was brave enough to make as long as she didn't tell herself that's what she was, that doing. she was making it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Clearly I think of, of all the, we've, we've talked about, I don't know, 18 Ackerman films or something by now or 20 wow. Ackerman films. And um, I think this is, definitely the most challenging so far i well this is yeah maybe that's a good point is that certainly i've seen a lot of uh critics refer to it as as the quote most radical of her documentary projects um which you know is interesting i mean i think it i think i like the way elisa framed it as the kind of deceptive simplicity because i think the other films are often you know, doing more on the surface, right? They're often moving through larger spaces. They're often very explicitly dealing with kind of like uh, political events, histories, uh, these kinds of things. Whereas Le Bas is again, a bit unstuck in all of that. It doesn't quite locate itself in such clearly defined um, sets of parameters and questions, right? It's a bit more abstract. Um, and then again, Ackerman herself, the figure of Ackerman as the kind of author is sort of pushed to the front in a different sort of way. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that necessarily makes it radical or not, but I do think that it's a film that relies very heavily on knowledge of her practice, knowledge of her histories yeah. in a way that it, it would be a difficult film, I think, for someone completely unfamiliar with Ackerman's career to, um, not to get much out of, I think you would get something out of it regardless, but I think the film is all the richer for having that kind of background knowledge of her work. I guess I, I, I mean, I don't have, the, I don't have the opportunity to encounter her work anew, you know, for the first time mm. uh, at all. But I, I mean, I found a lot of the musical films of the, of the 1980s much more difficult. I mean, <laughs> I, Interesting. I think they're, you know, funny in, um, in their way but like for me those were much more much more difficult like a, a like a a turn away from some of the things that i thought she um you know was more effective in communicating and above is definitely for me you know one of her stronger films so uh and braver bravest one of the bravest um that she makes so i don't know i i guess it's it's so hard for me to come to it anew and i don't know what it would be like but I did. I brought my oldest sister to the screening of No Home Movie that happened right after uh, Ackerman killed herself, and my sister knew nothing about Ackerman. And I thought, oh my god, she's <laughs> this is really going in the deep end. Yeah. And she seemed to really get it. I think maybe it depends on whether you have some, uh, I don't know, cultural context for some of this stuff. But like, I think she would have gotten Naba without knowing anything about experimental film or Chantal Ackerman, or her oeuvre, like, I think she still would have. So I guess, it, yeah, if you have a connection to the issues um, and the place, I think it, it would resonate pretty strongly, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and we haven't talked so, so much yet about, like, the kind of 
psychological um, framework maybe that Ackerman is setting up here. But of course, like the way that she uses the apartment as a sort of echo or double for her own kind of subjectivity in the film, right? This idea of like the camera obscura model of subjectivity, right? That we, we have the kind of rational agent behind the eyes that looks out at the world and this sort of this separation in the distance then between the like Cartesian ego and the world out there. I mean, I think the film, it really sets that up in a kind of fascinating way. Um, I don't know. And I think it sort of critiques it too. And I've never forgotten. I can't find my notes about what I, what I wrote down about. Have you, have you been in a, have you been in an actual camera obscura? I have, I have. So, yeah. Uh, the one at George Eastman house in uh, Rochester. So I've been to the one in, in Bristol in the UK and the whole world is upside down. Right. That's true. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I, there is something to that in, in this, in this film where it's just like, not, you know, nothing, nothing is what you might expect from the image, right? It just doesn't kind of deliver um, the world to you in in any real. In the way. yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that goes to what Simon was saying too about the kind of digital effect here as well. Like I didn't, we didn't mention it before, but the, the kind of digital consumer grade video tends to really flatten everything. Like it really, it like you can you can deduce that there's depth in the image, but it it really kind of makes everything flat in a certain kind of way. So you again have this sense of like. The world is there, but you don't really have some kind of like access to it in this kind of, you know, classical uh, transparent sense. Um, and then the other kind of key scene that we haven't talked about yet is that there is maybe kind of very late in the film, this very radical rupture in the aesthetic where uh, you get the kind of camera, like the, the footage is sped up all of a sudden, there's a plane that appears, the sound goes kind of haywire. It's really like a very uh shocking kind of juxtaposition after the camera has been so static the camera so is shaky long. it's very erratic yeah. the shots are much quicker the pace is just breaks the whole thing i mean you you'd think yeah. i actually i remember the film's ruptures as being those two scenes out by the sea by the mediterranean yeah. but actually this is the real rupture in the film mm -hmm. right the mediterranean scenes are delivering kind of all right, look, I know you know, you know, let's not make a big deal about it. I do go outside. Here, this is yeah. <laughs> you think, I was actually going to ask you guys why you thought those 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 shots were there. Um, my only thought about them was that they will probably not be picked up by the Israeli Tourism Board to show off their beaches. <laughs> well, I think that's that's it exactly is the fact that they're not particularly attractive or like enticing views of this space i mean again they it feels quite distant it's like she has a sort of distanced camera on people kind of walking around in groups you see people sort of playing games but it, you don't get the sense that it's like this sort of lively fun space it's sort of people walking around kind of by themselves and there's a family group at one point i think but ackerman feels quite distanced from it quite separate from it and this and it feels a bit cold i don't know how to describe yeah. it other than that it just feels like a bit of a cold space not exactly what you would describe as a beach scene yeah i mean you, no. i think you referred to it as the ocean before but it's it's actually oh, yeah. just the sea but it feels like there are there are shots where it's as menacing as kind of powerful uh as an ocean might be right i mean she's really not showing this uh, and tel aviv can very easily be shown the beaches of tel aviv can very easily be shown as kind of lighthearted and playful and you know people having fun she doesn't have any of that yeah well, I mean, I, like Simon, what did you make of the scene where the camera goes all shaky? Did you, what was your reaction oh, I, to it? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I got nothing for this one. It was just, it was another one, of, much like the, much like the beach scenes. It was another, another, another moment of like, oh, I, th I, I thought I sort of knew the schema here, but no, there, there, I don't. I think I have a feeling for it. I mean, it's just a, you know, guess, intuition, like everything. But um, there's a, there's a point 
kind of toward the end of the film where she talks about how it was only when people started calling her and asking how she was and the phone calls continued into the night, you know, as time differences were occurring, that she began to unravel, that she that she actually realized kind of how close she had been to, a, you know, a, a terror incident that, you know, caused actual fatality. She, and so to me, it's this sort of, you know, realization of the of the danger right it's all about airplanes and Mm -hmm. um something you know out of control something very uncomfortable or or almost uncanny that like you know as nicely as she can organize her frames and and kind of lock off her camera and kind of let it do its thing there's also this sort of maybe it's maybe it's too literal a reading i don't know but this you know this underside of things that is very uh, anxiety producing. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's literal. I think that, I think, you know, Ackerman, uh, spoke about it, that, you know, working with, with Claire, uh, with Atherton to edit it, that they, that she'd shot this footage of a plane and Claire had come up with the idea of speeding up the footage and that, you know, together between the two of them, like this captured for Ackerman, this feeling of her anxiety looking out the window when she saw the plane and she thought, this is it. Like there's going to be a kind of war or a bombing or something terrible is going to happen. And um, so this moment of the kind of like sped up sense of anxiety, or I think Schmidt calls it like the re- the visual rhetoric of war, this idea of the kind of rapid shooting and which, which I think makes sense, but I think maybe what's the most, I don't know, sort of upsetting about that sequence to me is that, and Simon, I was thinking of you when this occurred to me, is the fact that you often point out that in so many of the films that we've seen so far, Ackerman will set up a very kind of rigid, formal paradigm for the film. And then at a certain point, there will be a kind of break with that paradigm, which is like an exhalation or a release or something. Here, this sequence feels like it could be that, but it's the opposite. It's like a right? panic instead, attack it's like, instead. It's like a panic attack. It's like something gets so much worse when you take the formal structure away, right? It's like you lift the kind of bounds of the film and what's beneath it is so much more terrifying. To me, that was maybe one of the more upsetting kinds of realizations when you look back at this film from, from again, the, the awareness that Ackerman would only live for another, you know, nine years or whatever it was and that really hearing her say so regularly in the dialogue, I'm not doing well. Like I'm really not doing okay. I'm, I'm semi blind. I'm semi deaf. I feel so disconnected from everything around me. I don't know how to live. It really, I feel like the psychological kind of force of some of that stuff just hits that much harder this time watching the film than it did when I saw it the first time. I mean, it's yeah. almost, I actually, I didn't re- I hadn't realized the, I didn't, don't remember Ackerman and Claire talking about it. I don't remember Schmidt talking about it, but it almost seemed, I guess, because I was saying, you know, maybe this is too literal a reading. It's almost cheesy and they don't usually go cheesy. That is something, you know, Ackerman usually refrains from like, you know, uh, giving, giving it away, right. Too easily. But, um, I can't, yeah, I can't see any other way to read that. It's only a minute, maybe maximum, probably less of some kind of shaky shots. And then we kind of go back to the house. We have a little bit of a, you know, we have, then we have a deeper shot of the internal space and we can see Ackerman in reflection. And it's almost like we're a resolution, like we're given back, back to that sort of safety of that little nest or prison cell, if you will. (laughs) Um, and it's a relief, you know, to be back there. But that's almost too obvious. 
Well, I, yeah, it's fascinating because I love, I, I like that. A, I like that you call it cheesy because I've always thought it verged a little on the cheesy and I was never sure if I was alone in that. I feel like in retrospect, it works a little bit better. Like once you've seen it and you kind of get used to it, 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 it the cheesy edge goes away a little. But it's, um, but I think what I love about that kind of final a shot in the apartment or one of the final shots in the apartment where you are further back in the in the space and you can see you still are seeing out towards these windows that we've seen the whole time but you see Ackerman framed on one side in a reflection and she's brushing her teeth which again is like a hilarious callback to a uh, man with a suitcase she's always brushing her teeth in the frame um but you see this space going back but what I like about that I think is that and it, this follows up with a point I was trying to make about it sort of critiquing this idea of the kind of like Cartesian subjective model, a little this echo that like the dark, the dark room is is the inside of our mind or something. That I think Ackerman, part of the other thing she's staging in this film is the echo between her desire to kind of research and understand the history of the Jew or the history of Israel or all these things, right? She says, I read very complicated books. I read all these books. I try to learn, which of course is quite funny, right? The idea that you're in Israel, but rather than going outside and experiencing it in this lived way, she retreats to read it in this very mediated way, right? She sets up a camera to look out and she reads books. Um, so there's that element of it. But the idea that like her kind of research here, her reading, her writing, as much as it is about trying to find the outer, it is, I think, as, as Elisa, you pointed out, it's about trying to find the inner, right? Like she kind of is almost parodying this a little bit. The idea at one point, I think she says, you know, if my grandfather was a descendant of the rabbi of bells, I must be a descendant of the rabbi of bells. I try to feel what that feels like inside. Oh, I feel it. No, oh, I don't, I don't feel, feel it. it. Yeah. You know, I don't feel it. I don't know what it feels like. It, you know, it's this kind of joke of this idea that like, that we would be the experts on our own interior experience, right? It's like actually is staging this idea that that researching the world is as much a way to learn about oneself or, or kind of desperation to learn about oneself as much as it is a desperation to look at the world and so that when she when she brings the camera further back in the apartment it's the idea that like oh here we are in the interior but nothing is really being revealed. Like there is no kind of like grand sense of like, oh, well now we know her. Now we've seen the inside or now we've seen the solution to these questions and these problems, right? It's just, we're just a little further in, but it's still just a kind of empty quote interior. I don't know. I think it's genius. Yeah. Then toward, well, before, before the toothbrushing scene, before that whole reveal, there's that, com or maybe it's after. No, I can't remember. There's it might be after the, the imprisonment one. Yes. The conversation yeah. she has exactly with the, with the, person from the university he's not specified we don't know what her relationship to him is we know that she has some respect or regard for him and he basically you know says yeah we you know well we all have our our, our own prisons but you know you you can get out of it and her response is i didn't dare to ask how <laughs> right and, you know and and uh, you know and i i believe him i i you know i i i'm i'm sure he knows she basically like tells us that he's somebody who you know we can we can rely on for this but like she's desperate for this knowledge she has clearly imprisoned herself and you know obviously with the resonances of ways in which Israel is also not only imprisoning others but itself um but the guy is just certain and you know he doesn't offer how and she doesn't dare to ask I think even the fact that he diagnoses what's going on, like this, this is the scene, right? He comes in and, and I think she recounts that he, 
he's talking about this idea of imprisoning oneself and then he opens the blinds and he says it's hard it's so hard to get out of prisons especially your own prison like especially the prison that you feel for yourself and i think just the idea of it being diagnosed i think to me that's an important moment this idea of a sense a sense of the outside having come into the interior at the end right someone someone who can come inside and say you are this person like it's there is a way to look beyond this like to me that's a that's a very important moment this idea of the other here because i think you know speaking about the other and the self earlier if the film is dealing with that the the quote unquote other here is very much people in Israel. It is these people living on their balcony on the other side of the, the street who can, you know, barbecue and can put makeup on outside and can smoke cigarettes all day and and live. And, and Ackerman has kind of both professed, you know, I think kind of like not exactly envy, but but is impressed often by these people, right? She says, you know, this is, there's something important in this, the idea of kind of living in the wake of tragedy, the fact that they can make this life and they can experience these things. But I think what she doesn't say there is that there is also a kind of reticence about that, right? The idea just sort of going on in the face of this is that she's maybe she doesn't feel like she can participate in that at the very least. And so I don't know, these questions are left very much hanging, I think, in the film. Yeah. yeah and of course, when you say that, you know, for her, the other is, you know, other Israelis who are coping and doing perfectly well, there's no Palestinian other at all. Exactly. Even, exactly. You know, even alluded to, even peripherally it it's like you know doesn't exist at all so i mean that's of course a a disappointment of the film but you know at least she's at least she's not idealizing um that which you know that which has been built by the jews for the jews Yes. Uh, and she does return to these questions later in her installation now, which I I think I've seen, but I think I've only seen sort of documentation of it, not in person. And we'll have a chance to talk about it later down the road. But um, but I wanted to ask you, Elisa, while you were here, if you have you seen it and if you felt like it bear discussing anything in relation to, to Labah here. Yeah, I have seen it. It certainly does bear discussion um, in relation to Labah, but it's it's much more abstract then so you see you know you see several uh projected images of desert kind of driving by desert or still lock off shots of desert but the soundscape is of war you don't see war and 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 the war is sort of general uh unspecified where is this war who is making this war you know, what are the implications of this war? What are the politics of it? It's just kind of a generalized kind of instability produced by war. And you don't see it also in the image. I mean, desert is barren, but um, so again, I mean, she, she doesn't seem able to, it's inchoate in some sense, you know, the, the, instability of the region the you know the wars that seem you know never to end um it it's there and she feels it but for her it's a disturbance it's a you know a psychic disturbance it's not there's there's nothing that we can pin this to uh yeah now is it's very abstract I'm I'm hoping we can I can see it again before uh, before we talk about it here we'll see but um well, I think I just have sort of one little last line I'll say before we wrap up but Simon was there anything that you wanted to to cover there No I don't think so my my brain is Oh, it's over. My brain, my my brain is 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 thrumming with activity. It's it's time. It's it's time for a nap. Uh oh, (laughs) time for a nap. Um. All right. Well, let me. I'll just say the one last thing I wanted to say. Um. 
But uh, yeah, because we, we only mentioned it a little briefly here, but but Elisa does work on uh, autobiographical cinema, questions of like the first person in film, which is a little bit what I work on as well. There's some crossover there. And I just, I, there was a line that Ackerman uh, references in Histoire du Cinema that, uh, sorry, not Histoire du Cinema, Histoire d'Amérique that we, uh, we didn't talk about that I wanted to reference here because, you know, even though we haven't said this, Le Bas is kind of a diary film, right? There is this sense in which it, it, functions this way like keeping track of her experience her own thoughts it's like a you know this technological version of a diary film diary um and in uh histoire she says this she has i think it's um oh the actor that you said his name of before was it robert roy, roy nathanson roy nathanson um that he says at one point uh but his mother is me says i can only confess to you diary for i am a woman and that's a line that it would only become clear much later, but that's a line that Ackerman um, came across in the diary that her grandmother grand, grandmother wrote. Um, and, and I believe and, you know, the, these aspirations, she had to be a painter and to do these things that she wouldn't have been able to do. And this diary becomes a space for her to speak about these things freely. And that line gets passed down through the women in her family. And I don't know, I just, this idea of like Le Bas is a diary film to me, I think is a kind of resonant connection with this history in Ackerman's practice and thought of thinking about women kind of working in these ways to kind of make space for their own histories that don't necessarily, as Elisa pointed out earlier, don't necessarily get the kind of space or attention that might exist for the, the kind of male histories or more normal, normal histories, normally accepted histories. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was my last little thought, but, um, but yeah, I just wanted to, this was such a pleasure to have you on, Elisa, really. I feel like I learned so much. So thank you so much for coming and chatting with us about this. It's so great. It's been an absolute pleasure. I I was I was worried that I wouldn't have anything to say. And then as soon as you get me on to Ackerman, I can't really stop. I actually even have something to say about the diary. Um, oh, yeah. Film, oh. But, go ahead. You know, you should go for it. Run, I, wanna... I think we've run, a, run aground here. But I'm OK. I'll be I'll try and be quick uh, if I can. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean. I don't know if you've already talked about Chantal Acker Chantal Ackerman par Chantal Ackerman, the, the so called we haven't yet it's coming so called up, yeah. autobiographical film that she makes where uh, that's where she tells the story about her grandmother and the diary and um, that you know she had been a painter and um, in a way Ackerman basically describes herself as kind of an incarnation of that right you know she she's the living realization of her grandmother's ambitions as expressed through painting and diary. Um, and yet in Chantal Ackerman par Chantal Ackerman, she, rather than doing an autobiographical film per se, she uses her own film to speak the, all of her film work. She basically does a mashup of scenes from her various films. And, you know, she's telling you something about herself through mostly her fiction work. But at that point she hadn't done you know, diary per se. And um, Laba is incredibly intimate in that, in that sense. And it's, it's a rare diary film because it, you know, it, it isn't explicit about what it's doing. And so much of it is, you know, really diary stuff like, you know, what you, what you ate for dinner and, yeah. and like, <laughs> you know, what kind of search it's going to be to, to replace the bread that she shouldn't have eaten in the freezer. Right. I mean, those actually are what people write in their diaries, but she, but you know, they don't usually make films. Uh, they don't usually include that kind of quotidian detail in a film. So it's, it's Ackerman really being Ackerman, like what she does in her fiction film, she does then um, in her own diary. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it echoes with something one of our other guests, uh, Lakshmi, said earlier, this idea of the kind of invoking the letter as the kind of like feminized genre or the genre of writing that isn't given the status of like, you know, the novel or these, it, the, the diary has been absolutely the same, right? It emerges in the kind of, you know, 1700s as this like uh, literary form. Yeah, feminine. Heavily, feminine. heavily associated with women. And so I just, yeah, I love yeah. the way that she kind of utilizes it here. Absolutely. The diary film tends to be quite male weirdly um yeah it does right yeah like kuchar it and the kinds of the AIDS videos and exactly exactly yeah. not just not just kuchar like uh, think about um uh, yoman the um the israeli filmmaker oh his name is escaping oh, wow. me um but there's loads of male diary filmmakers but ackerman's is also really different yes very true Oh, well, we could keep talking right. forever, but we should we should let ourselves wrap up well, here. Yeah. Let Simon's poor brain for inviting me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was uh, a real of course. pleasure. Um, Good. Elisa, anything you'd like to plug before we wrap this up? No, I'm not into plugging. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I like that. Uh, all right. Well, thank you uh, both. And thank you, listeners, for joining us yet again. Uh, we will be back in a month's time to talk more Ackerman. Talk to you all later. Yeah.